Hey everybody, so today I'm joined by Joe Parrish. Um, he's someone that I've been in contact with for the past year. Uh, he sent me some excellent poems about a year ago and we've been talking ever since. Uh, as some of you can tell by like the work that I've been posting on my website and elsewhere, um, I've just been very kind of concerned about, uh, too concerned with politics over the last few years, just um, both in my head as well as the kind of stuff that I've been writing about. And I really want to get back to discussing uh, the arts more broadly. Uh, I could just sit here and I could lecture for you know hours and hours on on whatever I find interesting, but I don't think that's as interesting as bouncing ideas off of people. Um, and this is especially true if I have you know an artist to talk to, um, an artist that uh, is around my age, right? And we're dealing with the same artistic struggles, right? We're still working at our craft. We're still trying to uh, get better and better and better. Um, and, and just the way that I'm describing that, I feel it uh, ties in nicely to, to the topic at hand, which will be Abraham Oslow and this uh, uh, just the sense of uh, uh, self-actualization, what that means, how it connects to the arts. Um, and again, like it's just very nice to, to uh, have these kinds of conversations with other artists. Um, and Joel, like if you want to just introduce yourself, the kind of work that you do, uh, your website. <clears throat> Sure. Well, thanks, Alex. It's great to join you today and have this conversation. Uh, we've had some really good conversations over the past year, so I'm excited to uh, to record this, you know, and, and see where it leads. Um, basically, as far as it goes for me, I, as you said, I, I'm a poet and a photographer. Uh, for my photographic process, it's all analog, so I uh, I shoot film and develop it myself. Uh, also work on photographic prints, um, and so. You know, the arts for me is something that I've delved into really over the past two to three years, I'd say. Uh, always have had an interest in it, always been, uh, you know, part of my, uh, you know, my intellectual orbit, so to speak. But uh, I think really after graduating from college and, uh, and just kind of entering normal life, so to speak, uh, I took more of an interest in it. Eventually found uh, Dan Schneider's website, Cosmoetica, and found you through that website just with some work. Uh, that you had posted there, and then eventually, once I started, uh, you know, making an effort to write on my own, uh, as you said, sent you some things last summer, and uh, and received you know good criticism back from you, and uh, and we've been in touch ever since, and uh, and that's been great. So yeah, definitely looking forward to our conversation today, and uh, and the topic at hand. And if you guys want to check out uh, um, uh, Joel's work, uh, it's poeticimport.com. You see his photography, you see his poetry. And one thing I want to say uh, before we, we get to Maslow is, um, so uh, uh, Joel, he, he's he's very good at poetry and he's very good at photography, right? Like it's, it's hard enough finding artists that are uh, at the very least competent, you know, in, in one field, right? In one uh, genre, as it were. Um, he, he works uh, with both media very well. So, uh, I, you know, I, being someone who, like, I used to sort of be in, interested in, in drawing when I was younger, but uh, now, you know, I've just been just involved in writing for so long. It's hard for me to imagine even kind of moving into a different art form, right? Like, there's limited time in a day. There's limited time in terms of just developing a, a craft to get good enough. But... Jill has been working on, on uh, poems in combination with photography uh, it, and not just like, you know, independently of one another, but trying to see ways to, to combine the two. 
Um, and I guess before we even get to to Maslow uh, himself, um, I, you know, I think this is a pretty relevant question to ask. Um, so there are many different pursuits anyone can pursue, right? There are many uh, uh, things that any one person can do. Why, why did you gravitate towards the arts? Like, what what's special about the arts, and sp specifically, what's special about writing, and what's special about photography to you? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think the gravitation uh, eventually was this, uh, it started as a feeling and I think now I have a bit more of a framework to say that, uh, that I can intellectualize it as well, but uh, initially this feeling that there was something deeper about the communicative style of the arts, uh, that there was um, something, you know, occasionally in the best artworks that we have uh, transcendent that either portrayed reality uh, in, a, in a better way or, or potentially even augmented it in some way to, to bring the percipient to some kind of realization or relation in their own life. So that became very attractive to me uh, over time. And I started to, uh, rather than simply consume art, ask, you know, could I produce art? Is this something that's within me? And so um, it, it really did start actually more with photography uh, in kind of a hobbyist sense. And as I photographed more and more, uh, I just continued to, to really enjoy it. And I, I thought I was improving as well. Uh, still plenty of room to improve, of course. But, um, you know, that was satisfying. And, and then eventually, uh, as I was reading more and more, uh, literally one day, you know, maybe two and a half years ago, I just kind of reached this point where I thought, why not try to write a poem? What's mm -hmm. the worst that could come of that? Um, and I and I did, and it wasn't particularly good, but it also I don't think was terrible. And so uh, you know, then from thereafter, I remember that feeling very distinctly, uh, sitting in my living room writing writing those thoughts down, and then crafting them into something. And uh, and it was, I would say, probably a peak experience. Uh, we'll talk about that obviously in the context of of Maslow, but um, that spurred me on, and uh, and it's just stayed with me since. So, so this was a, a fairly uh, recent for you. Um, I remember when I first started thinking, okay, I really have to actually start writing and not just like you know mess around or uh, not get stuck in this like perpetual preparation stage. Uh, mm -hmm. That happened to me when I was maybe about uh, twenty years old. Uh, that's I also contacted uh, Dan Schneider of, of Cosmoetica. Um, Cosmoetica has like really brought uh, a lot of people together. You know, a lot of people now that I consider friends, it's specifically through that website. Um, and uh, I, I think you and I, I, I think uh, one of the affinities that, that we share, one of the things that we're able to bond over is, uh, you know, uh, we don't have to take this so seriously, but uh, I am uh, what would be called a type five in the Enneagram and so are you. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, I, I remember when I was like 17, 18 years old, I would just be looking for more more, po more po poetry books, right? More more novels. And not just, you know, poetry books and novels, but also criticism of poetry, you know, criticism of prose. Uh, just feeling mm -hmm. like, okay, I have to just read as much as I can. I have to understand as much as I can before I could finally sit down and do this thing, which back then it was writing a poem, right? Or writing a story. It took me, you know, a, a pretty long time to, to make that transition because uh, I, I was already reading for like years before I, uh, e you know, thought that I could finally um, do this thing. And even, you know, in other parts of my life, uh, uh, this kind of plays out in different ways, right? Like mm -hmm. I, I prepared, you know, quite a bit for this conversation. And anytime that I've, that I've done these kinds of uh, interviews or these kinds of shows, 
Um, it always turns out that I always like over prepare, right? That's kind of like you know yeah. that, that's sort of a, a reality um, for you know for a lot of people. Like if you're the type of person that uses knowledge as a defense mechanism, right? Like for me, you know, growing up, uh, 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 not having much, uh, being like physically insecure being uh, uh, at different points in my life, financially insecure, like knowledge was a way to really get control of the world, right? So you would just sit there and you would read books and you would hoard knowledge and you would say, you know, whatever happens to me, at least I could hit somebody over the head with like everything that I know, right? I could always use that to my advantage somehow. And eventually you learn like, okay, well, I, I have to get beyond this point of uh, uh, just hoarding on to myself and selfishly just absorbing everything without giving anything back. Right. So yeah. uh, that that's where art for me came in. Right. Like, so how can I make all this stuff that's floating around my head? How can I uh, uh, make it into something useful, make it something that the world could actually um, uh, 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 you know, like beyond basically what, what I'm doing? Right. Like, how can the world actually see what I'm doing, find some utility uh, f from it or in it? Um, and, and, you know, like part of like m getting mature, right. As an or as a person, right. you have to think about how would this giving back look like, right. You know, if you're an artist, that definition is clear, right. You have to make art, right. If you're a great teacher or social worker, you know, you have to do that, right. You, you can't just be stuck with, I need to prepare myself for the world and I need to, you know, concoct all these like, um, uh, defense mechanisms, right. Because that that's where, you know, that's where a lot of people get stuck, right? So many people that otherwise might be talented, they never get to express those talents, right? And, and that leads to self-hatred and so many other problems down the line, as well as just like in a purely like material sense, you're just, you're just taking something from the world that it otherwise could have had. Um, and sure. you know, maybe from here, we could like directly get into uh, 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 Maslow. So, um, uh, yeah, like like uh, b before we even get to like definitions uh, of art, maybe th it could be a little bit later. Uh, what would you say is, is uh, Maslow's uh, primary argument in this book? This is the book that we uh, read together, uh, Torah the Psychology of Being. Um, and this is the text that is, it's probably his most famous text. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it, it's the it's the it's the text that uh, I think most deeply talks about self actualization, or at least has a, uh, the, the the best summary, right? Because he touches on, on these ideas later on uh, in his life. But what would you say is the is the main uh, argument in this book? Sure. So to me, what it came down to is that all human beings have certain basic needs and desires. Uh, this is universal, and those need to be fulfilled in order for a foundation to be created upon which you can build toward a healthy and fulfilling life over time. Uh, so once those universal needs and, and desires are pretty well taken care of, you can move toward these higher goals. Uh, in Maslow's case, it's you know what he defines as self-actualization. And uh, it's with this objective to create being or be cognition, as he defines it. Um, as opposed to focusing on your deficiencies or your neuroses uh, instead and trying to, to maybe uh, fix things and fix yourself. So uh, this could manifest itself in more frequent peak experiences in a more creative life, uh, even just in a, an open architecture and uh, non-judgmental attitude in how you interact with yourself and with the world and, and with other people. 
and your experience uh, in the cosmos. So uh, finally, I would say just in, in some instances, strongly self-actualizing people can make an important contribution. And this is what you just talked about a little bit. And I think you even get this sense over time and a responsibility that if you can contribute to the world's scientific knowledge or artistic endeavors or just generally it's, it's betterment in some way, you have a duty to strive toward that and to, uh, to use your capacities. And, uh, and that's a more positive thing than, again, focusing on the, the neuroses and just being so inward all the time and, uh, and never moving beyond yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when we, when we think of Maslow, um, uh, you know, I, I first came across this name, like, uh, probably in high school sometime during, like, a, uh, a, you know, one of these, like, psychology classes that you take in high school. Mm-hmm. And it's always presented as this uh, hierarchy of needs, right? Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it's presented as a pyramid. At the base of the pyramid, you have, like, just pure kind of, like, physical essentials, right? Like, you obviously need air, you need food, you need water. Um, mm-hmm. Going up a little higher, right? You need like housing, right? Um, and 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 the 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 way that it's presented though is uh, this is uh, 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 this is sort of like what's necessary to live a kind of like normal human existence. But uh, Maslow he spends very little time on things like these physical needs, right? He spends a little time in the pyramid. Mm-hmm. Also, the pyramid wasn't even his invention. That was like you know that was done after the fact. So after he died. Uh, his ideas were presented as in terms of this, this pyramid. Once you satisfy the, the the base of the pyramid, you can reach these like higher and higher levels of humanity. But he stresses himself that um, you know this isn't really about necessarily even levels of humanity. Uh, you, you're constantly shifting in between, uh, depending mm-hmm. on the person or the context. Uh, some of these like layers of the pyramid m- might shift themselves. Um, but you know, most of his work and most of this book, it is about self-actualization. It is about peak experiences. It is about you know how should you live your life in terms of figuring out what you're best out best at and what that means for you not only in terms of like a a a moral imperative right like an ethical obligation to do whatever but also just how this ethical obligation plays out and plays into your own sense of health right like you know if you are uh if you have it in you to be a great artist and you've written maybe like you know a a book or two or, or some stories and then you suddenly stop uh, if, if that's the thing that you've demonstrated that you're that you're best at, it's going to be a problem for you down the road, especially you know by the time that you're you know so old that you can't really get get back into the swing of the arts. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's like a muscle, right? Like if if you don't uh, use it, you will lose it, and you will lose yeah. it easily. Um, it's going to be a problem for you. It's going to be a problem for your satisfaction. You're, you're going to feel, you know, a, a lack of purpose. You're going to feel self-hatred. Um, you know, at any time like that, I'm not writing a book. And now it's been like a, almost two years since my last book. Uh, I feel like, you know, what am I doing? It doesn't matter how many essays I write. It doesn't matter how many, you know, YouTube videos I might make or how many books I might read or how well like the rest of my life is going. If I'm not writing a book or if I'm not actively thinking or planning a book, uh, that that's a significant burden for me, like existentially, right? Like, um, I you yeah. know, I, I I feel like I'm I'm losing purpose, and I also feel like, you know, I'm not I'm not living up to to my own standards, right? And and this is a this is a very common experience among artists. Like, if you look at the biographies of, of artists in general, um, this is 
this is like a, a, a constant struggle, right? Like, am I actually doing the work that I'm cap capable of? And uh, it, it's one thing to apply that to like, a, I guess, a career, whether this is like a, a great career or like a more generic career, but uh, uh, careers don't usually create that kind of sense of purpose. But, you know, for artists, uh, you're, you're always thinking like, you know, if I'm not doing this, not only am I, you know, screwing myself over, but I'm kind of taking something from the world and that's not fair and I don't have a right to do that, right? So you're constantly burdening yourself over and over and over again, which, you know, it, it, I guess it could be very unhealthy. Um, you know, I, I've not always been healthy in that situation. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's, it's also kind of like the best stimulus to actually, you know, get shit done. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and I'm sure we'll talk about this in a little bit more depth, but, uh, but that's exactly it. You know, you, you have this, this guilt in a sense that can weigh on you. Um, that's why things like, you know, writer's block or any kind of creative block can be so, uh, so problematic for, for artists and creative people. It, it creates this sense of uh, of dread in a way you know and, and lack of lack of meaning lack of purpose yeah uh, and you know you may not even really understand why that's happening yeah. uh, every time that it happens which can be uh, can be frightening i'm sure so yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, one thing I'll, I'll ask um is is this uh do you notice like as you're uh, getting older I, I i've had these like thoughts like definitely in the past especially before i had written anything before i wrote any books I would constantly get the sense of, you know, when I look at the sky, when I look at, at the street, I'd always feel as if like the world is kind of like opening up to me. Like there's all these like secrets and mysteries that I need to uncover. Mm -hmm. And I always like imagined like my life in very kind of non-specific terms. Like how, how would that look like? How would that be? And the more that I would write, um, it's not that I would get fewer and fewer of those experiences. It's just that, um, I, I started like sort of cultivating some of these answers, right? So you get less of those, like the world is opening up and, and more feelings that you're sort of entering the world, right? You're actually in the world, you're living the world, you're doing, you know, yeah. you're doing the worldly worldly things that you are in fact set to do. Um, and, and I've never known like if that was just like a, a personal thing uh, for me or if like other artists in fact feel that. So like, ha have you felt things like that? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Uh, I have. I, I would agree with that sentiment, and uh, maybe it manifests differently for different people. I think you articulated it well, but but there is that sense of um, you know even mystery or mysticism a little bit about the cosmos and the world at large, and that you know if you're really being true to yourself and doing the work you should do as an artist, you're going to try to turn up as many stones as you can yeah. and see what's underneath it. Um, not everyone's going to be worthwhile to pursue, but if you aren't doing that, uh, you're you're missing it a bit, and so uh, that's that's definitely the case. And and I would argue too, uh, the, the the idea of peak experiences or just generally being more self-actualized leads to that that feeling, that integration of yourself with mm -hmm. with the world. Yeah. yeah. Um, and one thing that it makes me think now is like, well, you know, uh, it, we're not like randomly uh, selected artists, right? We are very cherry picked. I would not do this kind of call with the you know majority of people that uh, email me with like poems or like wanting a critique or like leaving comments on a website. Uh, I, I think it's useful to have someone that, you know, I think is a good artist. 
uh, you know, having these kinds of comments. And, and, you know, it makes me wonder, like, is, is an artist who fails to be a good artist, like, it, you know, do they lack these experiences? Do they simply have the first part of it, which is this kind of, you know, the, 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 the sense of there's a world, there are so many mysteries and, you know, they could be very genuinely curious and they could be very well read. They could be very smart. Um, yep. but they, you know, like, like art is so kind of like, if you change like any, like I get the sense that if you change any random variable, um, as an artist in your life, uh, you could have just easily then not ended up as an artist. Like if my childhood was any different, it's very mm -hmm. possible I would have not ended up as an artist. Uh, if um, I didn't discover some of the books that I randomly discovered as a 16-year-old, I probably would not have become an artist. If I had not discovered Cosmoetica, uh, when I told this to Dan, he, he uh, often disagrees, but uh, I, I definitely uh, get the sense that if... I had not found some kind of blueprint for understanding the arts and finding mm -hmm. a way to replicate that. Um, I would have never made past the stage of like, okay, I'm a, I'm a smart, curious person. You know, I have a, a variety of interests, but none of that would ever have been leveraged to actually making something that's like artistically worthwhile. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I, I'm just wondering like to, to, to what extent are people who want to be artists, but never quite get there. You know, are, are they still kind of like forever stuck in the stage of I'm not in the world, I'm never in the world, I just see these mysteries and these mysteries never, never, you know, crystallize into an answer, right? Like they never, they never form into anything that's coherent. Um, so. Sure. Yeah. Well, and, and to comment on that, so I have a couple of thoughts, you know, first of all, uh, I think you're right in terms of, um, you know, your environment playing a role in eventually leading leading it to becoming an artist uh, i certainly have i could probably go you know blow for blow with you right on this book or this moment or this teacher or what have you uh being influential and so there's an element of luck right in a way i mean you and i have talked about this before uh the, the luck the luck factor in life but at the same time i think if you're constantly searching and seeking uh, and, and getting a better filtration system for what's going to help you and what you can cast aside, mm -hmm. then you, you do hone yourself into the kind of person that could become a, a good or great artist. Um, so that's, that's the effortful piece of it that you really have to continue working at. It's, yeah, you know, I'm sure there are plenty of folks who, uh, it's much easier to, to sit in the armchair or mm -hmm. sit on the sidelines, right? Well, I could. You know, I, could, I probably could do that if I wanted to, um, but but unless it actually plays out uh, in your reality, it, it's it's not going to be uh, worthwhile. It's not going to be fulfilling. So uh, I think that also plays into another topic. I'm sure we'll we'll talk about here in a little bit. But uh, you know, the fear that yeah. Maslow describes when you discover uh, probably first that you even have this sort of lens through which you view the world. That's mm -hmm. step one. And then step two, to then discover whether you have any talent to make that mean something to anyone other than you mm -hmm. and actually communicate your ideas. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah. yeah. I, I have a lot to say specifically about the fear. Like I'm sure we can mm -hmm. get into, you know, uh, what was happening in our, in our heads, in our lives when we first started, you know, not just making the discovery that we have uh, some talent that we could uh, show the rest of the world. But also, um, you know, what that really would mean for our lives and how might, you know, 
how might the arts and being artists how could that damage us because there's there's definitely so many risks there um uh and, yep. and we'll, we'll get into that but but i think i think it's important to, to have this uh definition in place because when you know when uh, uh and you know all of this just sounds so like condescending and silly but like when the laity right like when non-artists think of like great art or like defining art they probably have a fairly different uh, definition that, than the one that I'm working with or the one that you're working with. Um, and, you know, for the show notes for this, uh, for, for this show, um, uh, th so this is what I wrote. So like, thinking about, you know, how would I define art? How would I present it to uh, an audience that, you know, maybe might be like on the fence and might, you know, come around to like my, my definition and my ideas? How would I present this in like the, the shortest way possible? And this is what I came up with. Um, so uh, art is the communication of ideas with an emphasis on how. So what that means is, first of all, you can't go the uh, Nabokovian route, right? When I was growing up, uh, when I was like a teenager, Nabokov to me was like the be-all, end-all artist and critic, right? Like I read everything that he wrote. Um, I, I was really into his like points of view. Some of them I didn't totally understand, but he was always like anti-idea. He said like you know the second you put a, you know ideas or start talking about ideas in, in your art, um, that's when you know that that uh, you're about to hurt your art. And uh, I I th I, th I think he he had a very limited point there in the sense that we have writers like Albert Camus who write books like the plague and i was like recently trying to reread this thing and uh like all that book is it's a philosophical tract that's masquerading as a novel it's not a novel it's just you know it's just like somebody's ideas and he's like okay how can i like you know write some fairly like cardboard cutout characters and put into their mouths like my personal opinions about the world right how can i turn them into like you know repositories for myself which mm -hmm. is a, which is a danger right that's not that's not what art is right like you need to right. have in a novel you need to have actual characters now really skilled writers can sort of avoid that you know there are ways that you could use cliches or even cardboard cutouts in a way that makes sense mm -hmm. um like some like some of vonnegut's characters i wouldn't really consider them fully human but they're so kind of caricatured yeah. in some senses and, and they fulfill such a different function that uh, it's okay right because he's busy working on those other functions so, uh, right. uh, uh, but so for, you know, Nabokov to say that, like the most charitable interpretation of that idea is, is that, right? It's don't lard your books or your poetry with so many ideas that you forget that there's an actual craft involved, right? Mm -hmm. um, but when you, you know, when you kind of like mature and you like read more books, you do understand that, okay, uh, you know, there is some, there, there is craft obviously, but you can't just do craft for craft's sake, right? You need to actually say something. A paragraph yes. has to have meaning. A line has to have meaning. Multiple lines need to have meaning. And they need to be discussing something. And a truly excellent uh, writer in terms of craft could get away with like really like cliched, silly, over the, over the top or even fucked up ideas. Mm -hmm. um, but but uh, generally speaking, you want to aim for 
uh, being substantive in what you write and also uh, the how, right? So like the second part of the, part of the definition is there's an emphasis on the how, right? Like like Dan Schneider, he says, think of art not as a noun but as a verb, right? There, there is something going on, right? There's, there, right? there's a difference between saying I'm going to sit here and write a great philosophical paper in the sense that, you know, the arguments are going to be ironclad, the arguments are going to be clear, you know, that could be great in terms of philosophy, but that's not the same thing as saying I'm going to write a great story, right? Which means suddenly, okay, you can't use cliches in, you know, typical ways. You have to make sure that your uh, 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 descriptions make sense and that they're memorable. You have to make sure that characters are uh, realistic, right? And they're fully fleshed out. So, um, uh, uh, so when I think about art, right, it's, it's a combination of, of both those things. You you have the ideas, but the emphasis is not so much on the ideas. The emphasis is on the how of these ideas, right? How can you put these ideas forward in a way that people, you know, really, truly, truly remember? Um, and I know you mm -hmm. have like a slightly d different definition. So why don't, why don't you uh, give us uh, your, your take on that? Yeah, I, I will give my definition in just a second. It is similar to yours, slightly different, but uh, I, I think you pinned it right as you're talking about Camus and that idea. And, and my first thought in terms of uh, the types of character you were describing was humor. And then you jumped to Vonnegut and, and exactly, you know, uh, the, the humor can play off of uh, the way that he creates some of those characters. So I think that's a good example. Um, yeah, so, so my definition that I shared with you was artists communicating ideas at the highest level through the use of a medium of expression and the use of the medium allows the artist to play with reality to enact their will upon it and translate those ideas to an audience so um, right there I think it, it's somewhat similar to yours as you know I highlighted the how and in this case through a medium but you know in my definition I even you know put the idea of, of translating ideas right so that that would be in agreement with what you said versus uh, Nabokov's idea where you want to extract ideas uh, you know, from from what you're doing. So um, I, th I think that's just it. You know, the, the, the idea would be if, if you're going to be an artist and communicate an idea, use the artifice, mm -hmm. right? Uh, go ahead and make use of the fact that you are not just simply telling somebody exactly what you think in, in as you put it in a philosophical tract or in a conversation like this um, or in a classroom or something like that you know you if, if you're going to take it upon yourself to try to communicate something in a you know in a deeper way with more insight um, you need you need to learn the craft of how to do that and you need to continually try to grow and improve upon it and um, and, and, and then, therefore, you can become an artist rather than just uh, a lecturer or something, yeah. right? So, so like, th this immediately, uh, well, I have a couple things to say uh, about, about your definition. I want to talk about that word, the highest level, that phrase. But before, mm -hmm. before that, um, so, like, based on our definition so far, uh, there's a lot of stuff that gets excluded. Not necessarily gets excluded as art, but gets excluded uh, from the conversation as art of like a caliber that's high enough to even be in the conversation about the art. So like, you know, mm -hmm. um, if we're saying that art is about is about how um, showing up to like a gallery and, you know, just just bringing a, a blank canvas and saying, this is my idea on like whatever the fuck, like you could philosophically justify anything in the arts, right, which is why it's so dangerous. You could yes. justify 
anything in the art. So um, if you're just bringing forward a blank canvas, right, uh, that already means we're not really having much emphasis on the how. Uh, maybe you have a how in the slightest way of I have some idea to make and this idea, is, is, you know, is going to come about simply by, you know, uh, uh, blankness and doing nothing. That mm -hmm. in a very kind of like reductive sense, you know, m might still hit upon the how, but it's not really uh, done so in a meaningful way. Um, like, you know, I, I, I was thinking recently about, uh, so um, uh, uh, Rembrandt has this painting, Return of the Prodigal Son. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, it's, it's a great painting uh, for many different reasons. Like if you read the actual story of the prodigal son and you compare it to what's actually being shown, you know, there's already like uh, immediate layers of differences there, which is interesting to think about. Um, mm -hmm. There's the fact that you can't quite say right away, like what exactly all the all the all the all the uh, figures in the painting are thinking but you know just by their expressions and and and, and by their kind of like their organization of bodies you know for a fact that in in that rembrandt painting um there is uh, some kind of mental anguish or turmoil going on and right. just rising like a little bit higher past the heads of the characters it's the father uh the son and the brother the brother standing up and he's looking down at the uh at, at his brother um above their heads you see uh the, the background shape of the house that they're in and uh it, you know it's very interesting this was like a this was a painting from centuries ago and you get the sense that these like abstract sort of like portions of the wall they almost seem like you know thought bubbles right mm -hmm. they seem like they're a representation of you know all the kind of turmoil that that's coming to the fore right in these yeah. people's heads right this is the this is rembrandt's way of, of giving the the visual representation of that and when i was looking at it i was thinking you know what you know i can imagine like an abstract expressionist painter right so not like a picasso who's like abstract with a small a but like pure <laughs> abstract expressionism which is just like you know figures and shapes for the sake of figures and shapes an abstract expressionist could say you know what I'm going to make my own painting. This is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to literally zoom into that box, right? That little thing on the wall that looks like, you know, perhaps like a collection of thoughts or, or something else that's like kind of formless and we can't quite know what it is. I'm going to zoom in on that. I'm going to blow it up and I'm going to put that on the canvas. But mm -hmm. at that point, like you've used a part of the painting, but you've actually left out exactly what makes it a great painting, right? Like in, 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 in right. that painting, this corner that you've magnified and decided to focus on, it had a specific function, right? It, it was it was showing the kind of inner turmoil that was going on in a way that was you know oblique, that wasn't so easy to just pin down with words. And here you just, you know, you if you make that the painting just the painting itself you know you lose the painting right you, you lose the utility you lose the meaning right um so uh in our definition right abstract expressionism simply cannot be a part of it maybe like you could have a series of paintings that could be a part of it if it's part of like an artist's like grander work um mm -hmm. but but in, in and of itself it can't really be it can't really be a part of it right so that's that's the way that that i would uh, 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 view, you know, certain like art movements in light of this definition. I'm not sure if you have anything to, to add to that, but that's all I have to say there. Sure. Um, yeah, I have a couple thoughts in response to that. So 
Um, again, I, I think you're pretty much spot on with what you say, and it's as though, uh, you know, in the case that you gave, um, you know, someone decides to zoom in on the bark of the tree and claim that that's the entire forest, uh, right? And and so, you know, while it, it may be worth a little something on its own, uh, it's worth significantly less than than the total of what it could be. And it's, mm-hmm. it's you know, an artist's job to actually, mm-hmm. uh, you know, work toward that, that total and that higher form of expression. You know, there are levels to this, uh, and, and we'll talk about that more later too, I think. Um, I would say even... You know, Maslow himself would talk about, you know, and he addresses this at one point, and maybe later I'll have the actual pull quote from the book, but he talks about how you have to be prepared to understand that not everything that feels like a moment of insight actually is, or or even if it is, it still needs to be hammered away at Mm -hmm. until it actually communicates something. And so your example of, of, you know, the vast, vast preponderance of Kabak's painting is that you know? It's uh, it's something that just has simply not been refined in any way other than maybe a gut feeling that green and red and blue together on this canvas would mm-hmm. look kind of pleasing or something, yeah. right? Uh, and then and and then part of my argument, I made these comments to you when we were exchanging uh, ideas before today. Would even be you know artists are just as capable of trying to use what they're doing to gratify those deficiency needs. Right, so if if someone's going to get adulation and praise for claiming to be deep and insightful, but really doesn't have to put much effort in and can just paint a canvas, you know, green and red, mm-hmm. um, that feels good, right? And then if you get reinforced uh, with with these deficiency kind of needs, and and then all of a sudden you you don't want to displace yourself from the, you know, the, the, the peak or the pinnacle that you've reached or feel like you have, uh, you're going to keep creating bad art, right? And, and, and unless you have the moment of insight and that intrinsic guilt seeps in to the point where you say, I know that I'm actually being fraudulent here, mm-hmm. um, you're, you're not going to push your boundaries at all and, and remain stuck in kind of that endless cycle. So, um, yeah, those, those are my main thoughts. Maybe one other one, this might not be the greatest example, but one thing that was coming to mind when you talked about uh, the blank canvas right out of the gate or you know, them just claiming that that represents nothingness or its ideas about nothingness or something, you, you can still, uh, and Dan has talked about this before you know, in a number of essays um, on his site, you know, if you're going to take on nothing, you can still do something like that pretty well. Uh, and make it a good artwork, right? Uh, so the, the artwork that came to mind for me was uh, Bella Tarr's film, The Turin Horse. Yeah. Where there's not much that happens. Hardly yeah, anything it doesn't, happens. It doesn't feel like, I forget how long, I think it's like a three-hour film, maybe a little bit yes. longer or shorter, but it definitely does not feel like a three-hour film. Like, Mm-mm. like you know, and maybe you could answer this. Like, I haven't really thought about it because I've only seen the film once. I should probably watch it again, but... um. Uh, I, I remember when I saw and this was 10 years ago and I still remember it like uh, 10 years ago it's a film where more or less nothing happens in the sense that uh, it's a family they're sitting together they're poor they're eating potatoes for dinner 
mm-hmm. but you're very captivated by all those like individual motions you know the act of like i remember how he would cut open the potato and how he would be like steaming right Yes. Uh, and I remember thinking, you know, is this really enough? Like, this is hard, you know, like a physical labor. Is this really enough to to sustain them? I remember how the potato was looking on his beard, and um, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, like like the, these details just stay with you. And uh, I mean, if we're on the subject of, of the turn horse, uh, uh, w- why do you think that those details that I, I think like to the average person, like they would be very boring why mm-hmm. like what is it about that and what is it about good art in general that could make uh the prosaic you know like uh, more or less uplift itself right but this is always you know as a result of the artist but it seems as if it's uplifting it, it itself to something that's not boring sure so uh i think it's a, a very good question um to, to some extent i think that what plays upon you uh when you're watching a film like that is the artist's sleight of hand. You know, Tara is a good enough artist that there are, there are ideas being enacted upon you that you don't even necessarily realize until later, uh, maybe when you're reflecting upon it. But it's things like uh, the camera angles. It's a decision to, f- to have the entire film be in just black and white to probably even add to the bleak feel of it in certain ways. Um, and, it, and it is these these moments that every human being has in their life, right? So even though it's banal, um, the way in which it's portrayed, and and my initial feelings are, I remember the exact scenes you're talking about, you know, with the potato and, and these kind of like tiny little details, which are great, but um, also even the tension between yeah. the, you know, the two main characters, where for a long time, I didn't really know, I mean, you can sort of figure out what their relationship is, but... Um, but you don't know for sure, and there's this tension and, and this build of like, is one of them going to murder the other one or something? You know, like it's making you ask these kind of questions because we've all had moments in life where there's tension between yourself and another person, and uh, by by leaving th- some things ambiguous and the way that it's framed up, uh, it does make you wonder about what's going on there, even though almost nothing is actually going on. So. It's, it is the use of the, the medium, right? And it's, it's the artist uh, communicating those ideas. Uh, I do think you also have to have the predisposition to sit through that, uh, in a way, right? You know, it's not going to appeal to everybody, but, uh, but that's probably part of the point, too. So. Yeah, and I mean, all of that, it's, it's, it's difficult, right? It's difficult for the, for the viewer in some ways. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's, definitely, it's difficult for the artist, obviously, right? Like, it's hard to do, and it's also a very rare occurrence, right? Like, if you think conceptually, yeah. you know, let me describe this film I want to do. I'm going to call the turn horse, and I'm going to, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to look like the following. And you, we list all those elements. Like, that doesn't sound very promising, but the mm-hmm. point is it could be exceptionally promising in the right hands. Um, and uh, so before we get like too into the weeds of all these other topics, again, this is about yeah. Maslow. Uh, we we yeah. have, um, so I have, I have this quote that's going to tie, tie into this, is going to tie into uh, ABEX uh, uh, in general and um, what we've been discussing. Um, so from uh, uh, Towards a Psychology of Being, um, so he, he's talking about like, you know, growth, right? Like if you're, if you're given, if you're constantly given a, uh, a situ- you know, like circumstances in life that um, allow you to either grow or to regress or to, you know, just kind of stay where you are, um, uh, 
why do people so constantly, right, so, so frequently make this choice to either regress or to stay where they stay? Like, why is growth so difficult? Um, so this is the way that Maslow characterizes it. Um, why is it so hard and painful for some to grow forward? Here we must become aware of the power of ungratified deficiency needs, of the attractions of safety and security, of the functions of defense and protection against pain, fear, loss, and threat, of the need for courage in order to grow ahead. Every human being has both sets of forces within him. One set clings to safety and defensiveness out of fear, tending to regress backward, hanging onto the past, and the other set of forces impels him forward toward wholeness of self and uniqueness of self, toward the full functioning of all his capacities. We grow forward when the delights of growth and anxieties of safety are greater than the anxieties of growth um, and the delights of safety. And mm -hmm. uh, I mean, this to me just captures uh, kind of like, you know, so much of the uh, artistic uh, project, like for, for any artist, right? Um, you know, with any book that you write, uh, you always want to do something different. There's no point in writing the same book five times over. Um, the only reason you would write the same book five times over is either you, in fact, have nothing else to say, or more likely is the case, um, you are uh, just scared of what's going to happen if you branch out. Like, it's much better to get as many failures as you can out of the way first, especially as a young person, right? You know, if you write a book that's just like, you know, a complete fuck up, but you, you know, try to do so many like different things from what you're used to, um, that's a good thing, assuming that you don't like force yourself to continually go down that road of like, you know, uh, uh, not getting any better. Um, mm -hmm. And you, you could easily see a situation with, with Abex where an artist you know, maybe they don't consciously start as frauds, right? Uh, 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 and maybe they don't end as frauds again in a conscious sense. Maybe, you know, some of them really do believe that uh, art is just nothing more than philosophy. Uh, and granted, like also like not very good philosophy in, in most, most of these cases. Uh, but, you know, uh, it, you know, it's, it's a problem that that, you know, possibility that maybe they're not all frauds, that that possibility is in fact indistinguishable from the other possibility, which is they are frauds and they have nothing to do and they have no talent and they have uh, 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 no desire, no willingness and just so much anxiety about really challenging themselves. Um, like like Pollock, you know, he used to suck as like a, a typical like figurative kind of painter. Uh, you know, was Abex, you know, for him, nothing more than a defense mechanism against his fears, right? Um, like, and, and, and the fact that you can't, like, you literally can't say that, no, it has to be something else. The fact that that is such an obvious and clear possibility, that that's a problem for abstract expressionism, right? Like if the product of ABEX can be, uh, uh, just, just fully defined as nothing more than just a bunch of people's like neuroses and inability to grow, um, if that's like a capable definition, uh, and if Occam's razor says that that is sufficient, you know, that's a problem for the art form. You can't say that even about like overrated works of art, like the Mona Lisa, you can't say that about the Mona Lisa. You can't say that, that that is a product obviously of like deficiency needs. Right. Um, uh, but, but, you, but you could, but you could so say that with, with any, you know, uh, with like the worst art. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would pretty much agree with everything that you just said there. I don't know that I have uh, a ton to add on to that. Um, yeah. 
Oh, well, I have something here that I wrote in the notes. Like, okay, so how would this connect to the arts? Uh, oh, well, you know, I it, just just in terms of just thinking, okay, what am I supposed to do as an artist? Um, and maybe you could res respond to this specifically. Mm -hmm. uh, the way that I view it is as follows. So if you're on the planet and you have, you know, a talent for anything, it could be the, the arts, it could be uh, anything, right? It could be you're a great lawyer, you're a great politician, you're a great social worker, teacher, whatever. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, you know, uh, you you don't have much choice in life other than to just do that and to build. You don't even necessarily have to have a very clear end goal, right? Um, uh, uh, you, you could, as an artist, say, "Well, you know, I, I read this. I, I, I read the Plague by Camus, and I thought this was like a really bad book. And I thought that one of the biggest problems in the, the Plague was how Camus made." Uh, uh, that plague front and center of the book itself, right? He wanted to emphasize death and blood and gore and oh my God, wouldn't you be so scared to be in this situation? But that doesn't strike me as a very like um, uh, uh, artistic uh, thing in the sense that uh, like most of the tension, like most of the poetic tension in life would be in all the surroundings. Like it wouldn't be like the blood and somebody dying and your fear of that. It would be the tension in you're walking down the street, right? And you have to keep a, a, a bigger distance than you otherwise would. You have to uh, put on a mask. You have to worry about where you're going and who, who, who you're around. What if, you know, you, you see somebody you know, on the street that you're very interested in and you feel like a romantic pull, you know, are you going to risk coming up and, and speaking to this person? Um, knowing that you might, you know, get uh, Camus plague and die, uh, this is really where the poetry and the art is. But he, you know, he 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 was not willing to, um, uh, 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 you know, deal with that. So when I'm writing, like I'm working on, a, uh, or I'm planning on a new novel now, I'm going to start it in the next couple of weeks. Um, I want it to take place during coronavirus. I'm not. I'm not sure if I'm going to explicitly name the virus, but I think maybe historically people would be able to tell down the line. And yeah. I'm not going to focus on like you know like uh, like I can imagine a very bad artist today sitting around and saying, you know what, I'm going to write a book about coronavirus, and I'm going to always have in the background this like you know figure and this monument of Trump. This evildoer that's like, you know, making it so bad and killing everybody. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that would literally be true. I mean, like, Trump's incompetence here, obviously, like, you know, he probably doubled uh, the ultimate uh, coronavirus death uh, in terms of, like, what should have been versus what we're getting. I'm sure if, like, Hillary Clinton was in office, um, I'm sure that, you know, probably the death toll would be half as bad. Uh, so, you know, that that's all literally true. But the question is, is that really the proper... Uh, a place for the arts or are you better off dealing with these kinds of tensions and you know I decided okay if I'm going to have this plague in this book it, it's not necessarily going to be front and center in terms of uh, you know the the, the, the like I, I'm not, not going to have any gore right I'm not going to have anybody even dying from it you're right. just going to get the sense of you're walking down the street and things just feel weird and disconnected 
you know, uh, the, the, the kinds of things you're capable of doing in a purely physical, material sense, they are not now more limited. And how, and, and you know, the, the, there's going to be a character there with like, you know, the, the, this growing sense of being disconnected from himself, but also just from the world at large. And how does coron coronavirus in that sense like play into that, right? Symbolically, you know, what might it mean that you have to keep a distance from people and even from yourself, right? Um, mm -hmm. This is where the poetic tension is. And, and uh, uh, to, to to just go back to that quote, you know, I see a book like the plague and I see a failure. Um, and I'm saying, you know what, I want to do something like this, but make it better, right? I have no reason really for doing it other than, hey, I exist in the, on the planet. I have, you know, a set of talents that I'm willing to exercise. I have nothing to do but to, in fact, exercise that, right? There, there's not, there's literally nothing else, right? There is no other goal. I can't say that this yeah. is going to lead necessarily to a better world. I think hopefully it will. I, I hope that, you know, every piece of great art in the world in some way, big or small, leads to like a, a good outcome in some way. But uh, whether or not that, in fact, happens, uh, in a sense, I have no choice but to do it. Like I saw this flaw in the plague, and I see I have an end. I also, I'm not sure if you know that book. Uh, like it's like white blindness or like something by like I think his name was Santiago. It's another like shitty book. It's like you know, it's like an updated uh, plague, except here the plague is you know people like go blind and all they see is white. And like you, you read, okay. you, you read the paragraphs, and it's like, and all he saw was white, the whiteness of death the whiteness of not seeing everything was you know and it's like yeah. is that really what you want the book to focus on um mm -hmm. so so like you know i see these niches and you know what else can i do but fill some niche that i see that makes itself available to me like like life just makes especially the arts they, they make so many opportunities available for you as long as you're paying attention to life if you're a curious person and you have artistic talent and you actually work at it you know uh you probably will succeed in that sense right um mm -hmm. you know, all these opportunities open up so um you know it just it just in terms of in terms of that quote like you know you, you have to see these opportunities and you have to challenge yourself you can't just say you know okay Camus did it this way and uh you know i guess that's all that you could do with the plague right like it's 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 really scary like to to tackle this topic you know because how am I going to tackle it if I'm just going to end up looking like Camus, right? You have to, you, you can't think like that. Like you have to go with it. Like if it sounds like a good idea and you feel like you can make, you can make it work, you have to not only do it, but you have to then like keep, you know, like, like thinking like, you know, I'm doing a good thing. I'm doing a good thing and I'm going to defend it when it's done. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if like if you, if you had like similar uh, situations in your life where you were like, you know, let me, you know, let me work on this, def de this deficiency need that I see in the world, right? Let me take that deficiency need in the world and let me turn it around into, some, into something useful for me that I could give back and the world no longer would have this like gaping fucking hole. Like when you think of like plague books, you know, they're mostly shit because they, they focus too much on the wrong things. And, you know, uh, uh, that, that's a gap in the world, a deficiency that, that needs to be filled. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, you, you've got a lot packed in there, but um, I do think that your um, your opening line of, of thinking while you were going off on that train is uh, is accurate. You know, in terms of you have to build with the building blocks that present themselves to you. Um, I, I think that um, you know certainly it's it's part of the artist's job to again have that filter and decide what that I'm coming across is actually worth being a building block and obviously some people are going to decide that uh, coronavirus in this time 
is and, and in your case, you know, also have prior knowledge of how these things have been addressed in the past, I think that's, uh, that gets to some of our opening comments about, uh, about gathering, right? And, and just the, the, the setup of someone who would eventually become an artist, uh, being one who from their early days is taking in the world in their own experience and also paying attention to art and other people's experience and interpretation of it so that then you even have uh, the knowledge that you do of something pre-existing that you could maybe improve upon, right? Um, a lot of people, I'm, I'm sure, don't have that, right? Uh, and, it, and therefore, it is just going to be this kind of, uh, you know, shallow waiting pool that they're working with of, oh, you know, COVID's happening. It's something I need to talk about, right? It's something I need to express how I'm feeling or how people seem to be feeling and uh, they're angry at the situation or they're angry at this particular person who is making it worse and, and whatever and then there's just never anything all that much deeper to it. So I agree with you on that. You can't know uh, the, the end result. Uh, even when you hatch an idea and then you start building on that individual idea, there's going to be, you know, hopefully some of those moments of, uh, of, of insight and of peak experience along the way while you're creating an artwork and then uh, you know what what Maslow calls primary creativity that primal instinctual sense uh, of something that could maybe be expanded upon or you know you take a, a fresh direction now mm -hmm. from what you initially planned on and you do follow your instinct for a while see where that leads and then maybe the, the end product is something uh, it's almost bound to be in fact something different than what you initially set out with in, in your outline and then that of course eventually extends to the entirety of an artistic life uh, I think you know um, in, in terms of personal examples uh, uh, the only one that's really coming to mind right here in this moment is a little bit more uh, applicable to photography than to poetry at least from my standpoint which is uh, any more I think it's uh, there's, I think there's a lot of wonderful photographic work out there uh, in the world, but uh, of course it probably doesn't get nearly as much attention as it should. Um, and you have to work hard to dig and to find it. Uh, films are probably almost certainly the same way because those visual mediums we're so inundated with now, um, and, and photography in particular, just lends itself to you know these quick snapshots of look where I was or look at this thing I saw or in this moment, COVID's case, right, uh, you see a ton of street photography and it's just someone getting beaten up by a police officer or yeah. some broken out window from the riots. And it's like, okay, that's fine, but it's the most surface level yeah. expression of this thing that's happening. So do you have any insight into this? Do you have anything else you want to expand upon? And... Uh, yeah. I, you know, I'm not particular, I don't consider myself, you know, a heavily documentary style photographer anyway, so I, don't, I, know I haven't had this strong desire to be out there in the midst of crowds of people snapping away, but mm -hmm. plenty of people have done. My whole point to that being, uh, you know, photography in particular is, uh, is just, there's so much great, in a sense, uh, or, or like I should say technically capable landscape photography anymore, right? Uh, someone can get... Uh, 100 megapixel digital camera and go hike up a mountain 
and be there at sunrise and set it up and get the right exposure and it's a gorgeous photograph. I personally am not going to go take that photograph mm -hmm. because I know it's being taken in a thousand other places right now by a thousand other people. And even if I could go, you know, do it better and, and then add on, um, it's, just, it's just not really something I desire to do. I started out with a fair amount of that stuff and I do still shoot, you know, landscapes and, and stuff from time to time, but anymore it's much more with an eye of, is this a potential building block piece, right? So rather than just make a perfect, gorgeous print of a perfect landscape, and that's my artwork, mm -hmm. it's, could this landscape now have a couple ghostly looking figures in it? Could it all of a sudden be an inversion or mirrored image of a streetscape that you don't expect to see uh, through a puddle of what, right? I mean, these are the ideas that you then start to bring in and play with that, uh, that can maybe lead you to, to something better down the road. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, yeah, I, I agree with that. And I mean, like back to like the, the, the personal level and, and also like just remind me right after, maybe I should take a note. Uh, I want to talk about again, your, your definition of art when you said, um, you know, like at the highest level, um, I want to mm -hmm. talk about that in a little bit, but uh, before we get off the topic on like deficiency needs, um, you know, like just looking back the last few years, uh, so like, you know, I, I wrote a book uh, or finished a book in uh, 2012. I finished uh, my next book in 2013. And then like, just I had this whirlwind of, of activity with the Woody Allen book. Uh, it took me mm -hmm. um, three and a half months to write, which is just kind of insane. Like I, I, I um, read uh, 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 a bunch of books on Woody Allen criticism. I watched each of his movies at the time in 2014, like about two or three times each. I watched a bunch of movies that he was influenced by, and I wrote, you know, like 160,000 words of text. And this just took took a few months, and you know, it's one of the proudest moments of my life because here I was working at the very highest capacity. Like I, I, I you know, um, I know that the Dan Schneider, like he could write even faster. I'm mm -hmm. sure he could write a, a book like the Woody Allen book faster than I did and probably have like another book thrown in in the same time span. Uh, and it would probably be like a, a great work of art on top of that. Um, but I know that with my kind of you know, uh, the speed at which I write, you know, my, my personal needs, the amount of like rest I need. I was working at the very highest uh, uh, level uh, to my personal capacity, right? Mm -hmm. um, just like morning to night, this is what I end up with, you know, over X number of months. Um, and it makes me wonder, like, you know, soon after that book, like I started the, I started my website and uh, most of my writing from that point on just, uh, uh, just kind of like became essays. And uh, part of that was like, okay, well, if I have this Woody book and I'm, I'm like sort of like public now, like let me get like sort of, you know, more and more of my, of my kind of like general ideas out there in the arts and not just this one thing. Let me put all this on, on the website. And, you know, I'm glad that I started the website. I have like over 100 uh, essays now. Like I have over a thousand comments and I've responded to every one of those comments. But especially in the last few years, um, I definitely do feel like uh, – I've transitioned to like placating my deficiency needs, right? Like it's much easier to write essays, to like watch something and to like, you know, uh, do an essay on it, read a book, do an essay on it, rather than just sit there and write books, mm -hmm. right? Writing a great novel is just harder than writing a, a, a great essay. 
and also just the specific topics that I chose, um, you know, and I've only kind of like snapped out of it this year. Like, uh, I started writing about stuff like, okay, Steven Pinker wrote, you know, uh, a, a kind of bad book on the arts and on writing. And uh, he's somebody that I respect intellectually. And I was like, all right, this is somebody that's worthy of my time to tackle. Here's somebody that in some ways uh, I, you know, I look up to. And, um, you know, here he did this book that I find so many flaws in. This is somebody worth my time. Mm -hmm. uh, but then it's like, okay, in 2017, I had this like probably my most popular essay at this point, my essay about Ben Shapiro. Mm -hmm. And it's like, who's, who's going to give a fu fuck about Ben Shapiro, right? Like, you know, f forget about like when he's dead. Imagine like 20 years from now. How many new shiny conservative like 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 fughead reactionary shiny objects are going to be out there at that point, right? We're going to get something new. Like Ben Shapiro is going to be old, right? He's not going to be like the fast talker that people that don't read anything could look up to and say like, oh yeah, he's really making a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. But I sp I spent a lot of time not only on that essay, but I spent a lot of time responding to all the critiques. And you know, I get it. Like on some level, like it's useful, right? Like. There are people in the comments that say, "Hey, look, um, you know, the, the this essay like really made me like uh, uh, look differently on Ben Shapiro." Then when I saw all the comments that you answered, like anybody that had an argument, you had an answer for, that changed mm -hmm. my life politically. I became a liberal after reading your responses because I saw no good responses to that. Mm -hmm. So it's useful. I'm glad. I'm glad that there are people out there that don't go the wrong road, like politically speaking. But you know, I can imagine there's many people out there that could do that specific thing as well as I can like writing but let's write an essay like debunking Ben Shapiro and let's spend you know like hours and hours and hours and hours like responding to all the comments there are many people in the world I think that could do that right um, there's also many people in the world that could do like that Coleman Hughes essay I did so Coleman Hughes is like this other guy another like a complete fucking loser right like you know terrible writer terrible ideas uh, uh, you know, just a very poor understanding of anything. Like, he's not really worth my time, but if I'm picking these targets, I think that does say something about me psychologically. There's something about me in the last few years that must have gotten insecure, right? Or feeling like, you know, maybe I'm not good enough or feeling like this stuff is too hard. Let me coast on by by getting like, you know, uh, popular with these like uh, essays on these people that don't matter. You know, because ultimately, you know, like, I don't want to write about these people. Ultimately, I want these people to be a footnote to my life. I want, you know, I think the ultimate revenge on morons that are harming the world, right? Like people like Coleman Hughes, people like Glenn Lowry, you know, uh, the ultimate revenge is make them a footnote to your own life, right? And the only way you could do that is not by continuing writing about them because nobody's going to care about them. So therefore, nobody's going to care about the work that you did about them. You have to do something worthwhile in a broader sense, right? You have to, you know, if you're capable of writing great novels, write these great novels. If you're capable of writing great essays on, on topics that have nothing to do with these like kind of like, you know, uh, uh, you know low-hanging fruit, do that, right? So, you know, like read, like I've read this, you know, Maslow book like ten years ago, but just rereading it now, it made me really kind of wonder, like, hey, like there is p something going on in my life in the last few years that you know uh, uh, that that I feel like I'm losing direction, right? That I'm feel that I'm feeling like you know uh, I'm too scared to go forward. I'm too scared to to deal with uh, the hardest part of my life, which is the arts, right? The arts will always be the hardest part of your life, mm -hmm. right? That kind of growth, like. 
you, you know, you're, you're, you're working, you know, you're home, you ate dinner at 7 p.m. Do you go upstairs and hang out with your wife or do you go downstairs into your office and like, you know, work on the novel until 11? You have to go to sleep right after that because you got to wake up, you know, and you got to like, you know, do your work again. Um, you know, these are these are hard choices to make, like, and, and you have to sacrifice a lot. And uh, I, I, I feel like I've sacrificed a lot less in the last few years. And I feel like I've 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 cheapened myself. I feel like I've, uh, I, you know, in some ways, like this, this sounds like melodramatic, but I almost feel ashamed, right, that I even talked about Ben Shapiro or even talked about Coleman. He was like, they're not fucking worth my time. Like, I'm not, some, somebody else could handle that, right? Like, I should be doing something else. And and if, if I could only do, like, the Coleman Hughes stuff or the whatever, like, fine, you know, maybe I could do that. But clearly, I am responding to some kind of insecurity, right, That that's forcing me to, like, just just obsess over over nothing right over stuff that just it just doesn't matter right look look at the people in the dick cavett show like all these like you know talking heads from the 60s and 70s um like i like i i know the political stuff like all these people are just like nobodies now but i, I was watching a, a dick cavett episode like half an hour between two um uh, two critics right they were two critics not even like a novelist or anything and they're just like trying to like uh, you know one up each other and they're not clever they're not funny like it's just boring to watch and i don't even know who these people are um and you know like 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 i you know like there, there's it, it just doesn't matter and you constantly you have to constantly remember that whatever you're doing in life like you have only a short life you can't get you know, uh, you can't allow like the tidal way of life to like just sweep you up and carry you along. And, you know, you have like no agency in that situation. You always have to do, you know, what your calling is. You can't waste your time. Um, and anyway, that was that was pretty long. So like, well, I mean, but, but, but I'm sure you've had like similar experiences, right? Like, like, I'm sure that you've been in situations where, you know, these deficiencies are, are coming to the fore. And you think like, it would be so much easier if and you know, you could just, you know, fill in the blank with with something that is not art, right? Something that is easy and something that is beneath you, right? Something that is beneath your time and, and beneath what you should be contributing to the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so a couple thoughts in response to that. Um, first of all, I think the sheer you know, fact that you're sitting here with me talking about this, and these are obviously things that you've uh, thought about pretty extensively for, for yourself and in your own life, is different right out of the gate, yeah. right? Most people would, uh, would not do that. I think that they would feel as though, um, let's continue on this path, you know, your Hughes essay and Shapiro essay and some of the other political ones that you've written uh, were incredibly valuable and a, a peak thing for them. And, uh, and they absolutely should have done it and, you know, then engaged with everything that came after. Um, so, so simply even having that disposition, you know, to, to sit there and criticize yourself um, is unique and, and I think is the hallmark of someone who is clearly doing that in everything they do in their life. So um, while it's hard, you know, I'm sure it doesn't feel good in a way, it's still uh, probably a good thing in general. Uh, I, I can relate to that. I mean, you know, the, the old uh, kind of candor that no one's harder on, on us than ourselves or maybe even shouldn't be, right? I mean, you have to be your own your own driver, your own uh, prime mover, you know, Maslow talks about that a little bit uh, in the book. So, so that's one thought. Another would be that on the same chain, 
that we've been on maybe for a few minutes now, where all you can do is build. I, I mean, now, whether you like it or not, things like those essays are part of your build, right? They're, they're part of, uh, of your construction project. That is your life, and that is your artwork and expression. And so maybe my encouragement to you is, is you know, in a sense, uh, maybe they're not such a waste. Maybe 15 years from now, when you're a more mature, better artist, you go back to those essays again, and there's something in there that can work in a book you're doing. Or you make them a character, or a caricature of them as a character or something. Right, um, and the only reason that can even happen, and they become a you know key part of this great artwork you produce, is because you had an exchange with it earlier in your life. Uh, I'm I'm just kind of riffing here, but you know what I mean, right? So it's not as though it's completely uh, cast aside and useless. Maybe you're feeling that right now for for whatever reason, or that you should have never done it. But uh, but I don't know that that's necessarily true. Um, you know, your self-reflection and ability to say maybe that's just me gratifying, you know, decognition or deficiency needs or, or whatever, um, again, I, I think is unique. And so therefore, I, I guess in a sense, I applaud you for it, even if that sounds strange. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I definitely feel that. And there's, there's this low-level anxiety uh, you know, that can just kind of pervade your life. And, and again, it comes back to uh, Maslow's intrinsic it, it, it never goes yeah, away, it, you know? It, it never goes, goes away. away. Uh, and again, my speculation would be that this is probably something that a lot of people feel in life in some way, right? If you're a parent, uh, low-level anxiety that you're not doing enough for your children uh, or, or your spouse or your family. And so then you're going to manifest that by accelerating your career and earning more money, you know, whatever. Uh, could take on any, you know, mm -hmm. any number of different forms. But if, uh, if you're a creative person, if you're an artist, it is that constant voice of like, if I'm doing anything else, literally sometimes it's hard to enjoy life because you're sitting there thinking, uh, is this something that's translatable? <laughs> you know, is, is this a seed? Is this something uh, that, that I'm interacting with that can or should be an artwork or a piece of one? And then if I don't eventually start working on that, I'm a failure and I I suck, and all I'm doing is just sleepwalking through my life or something, you know, uh, not doing what I should be doing. And, uh, yeah. and Maslow talks about that as well uh, early on. I think it's even maybe in the introduction where he speaks about uh, even from ages ago, you know, uh, humans having a, a word for this feeling. I think it was axidi or a Latin word or something for uh, that feeling of wasting your life, you know, not doing what you should be doing. What, what, what was it like? Uh, was it now, let, me, let me find it real quick. Um, I think it was A-C-C-I-D-I-E was how it was spelled. Yeah, theologians, this is on page 14 uh, in the introduction. Theologians used, used to use the word axid, axid, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but uh, to describe the sin of failing to do with one's life all that one knows one could do. Mm -hmm. um, so in that sense, you know, literally a sin, it's something going against the nature of God, uh, right, in their case. So, uh, anyway, those are, those are just, that's a little bit of riffing, you know, just with some thoughts in response to what you said, but, but maybe it's not all for nothing, uh, right, as you keep on building. Yeah. And, and it's interesting, uh, you know, you, uh, to put this in the theological context, like, it's, it's just, um, uh, 
you know, like I, I used to be uh, religious as a, as a boy. Then I uh, became uh, an atheist or like maybe technically an agnostic as a teenager. Uh, and like I, you know, I had this like militant like atheist phase. But, you know, it strikes me that the, the theological response here, like, you know, this is a sin against God, that you're wasting your talent and your potential. Uh, there is something really wrong about that. Um, you know, that's kind of spot on. That's like, you know, that captures reality than, you know, the kind of like the majority of like sort of, you know, atheistic philosophies that are around today. Um, you know, and it's, it's, there, there's a kind of like uh, coherence and, and, and a heft and a gravity there, right, that, that people need to um, contend with. It reminds me of uh, in, in Lao Tzu, there's a, there's, there's a quote um, uh, that you must take death seriously and stop wasting time in distant mm -hmm. lands, right? Like, you know, and, and uh, again, going back to the Enneagram, like we're both type type fives. I'm not sure what other kinds of pursuits you've had in your life, but I've had so, I've had so many pursuits, some pursuits that I'm even uh, too embarrassed mm -hmm. to talk about publicly, but I've had so many pursuits in my life. And, uh, you know, I'm glad to some degree that I've had uh, as many as I've had, but um, you know, I can't help but feel that they kind of take you away from, you know, your, your kind of like an essential you, right? Sure. An essential core. Um, in, in the sense that, like, you know, had you spent more time on this essential core, you know, uh, you would be closer to the you that you want, right? And it, it's, 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 always, it's always that kind of, uh, you know, it's always that, 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 that struggle, right? It's always going to be there. Um, and yeah, like, you know, like you said, like, uh, it, you know, if you have the opportunity to build, you know, like what other choice do you have? And, you know, like th th we're going to get later on. It's like the is all distinction that Abraham Maslow tries to sort of uh, resolve. But, um, uh, you know, people say like, well, you know, uh, uh, there, there is no ought from this is, uh, the alternative to doing what you're best at is just, just to do something that you're ter terrible at. Right. And in a logical sense, like, yeah, I mean, I guess you could do that, but, um, uh, it's just not reasonable, right? Like if you actually put that as an argument, right? Like as, as a set of like value systems, okay, my value system says that you have to just focus on what you're best at and keep cultivating that no matter how, how difficult. Um, and somebody else says, well, you should do the exact opposite. Once you said those values side by side and you actually, you know, you ask for an argument to take place and you try to hash out which one of these is, is better, you know, by any definition of the word better that we could come up with, um, you know, like those other values, they just seem so, they just mm -hmm. seem so silly, right? Um, and, you know, just to take it back to like, the political stuff, like, I, you know, I spent a lot of time arguing with libertarians and they have their own like funky notions of, of stuff like freedom. And, you know, I say, I say the same thing all the time. Okay, look, so this is my definition of freedom. Freedom, and this is your definition of freedom. And let's be clear about the kinds of freedoms that we're discussing. Your definition of freedom is corporations ought to have the freedom to more or less do whatever they want. You should have the freedom to, as a business owner, to uh, completely discriminate against you know a black person, even if you're the only business of its kind um, in this community, you know, like with black people, uh, because you believe that the market will eventually resolve itself. That's your definition of freedom. And then, if I bring in a definition of freedom that you know is very broad, well, I think a person is free only if they're able to choose the kinds of jobs that they want to choose without worrying about something like healthcare, right? Mm -hmm. um, 
well, clearly that's a viable definition of freedom, and it's also broader than the one that you just proposed. And you could go down the list, and you eventually will have on the one side, you'll have a set of values that are so much broader and, and, and so much closer to, to what human beings ordinarily think of as, as high values that, that they need to you know, focus on, that, that they all share, right? That everything else by comparison is just so silly. Like, libertarianism is just like the best way to think about it is it's just so fucking infantile, right? in terms of like what what human beings are and same thing with like a, a person that says you know you know i have a great talent uh, as an artist but i'm not gonna i'm not gonna make art that's just childish i mean you could do that nobody's gonna stop you there shouldn't be a law preventing you but like you're just a fucking kid right like you just never grew up right that, that's really what it comes comes down to um so so yeah that, that's yeah. the way that, that oh so uh, so yeah before we forget uh so when we gave our definitions of art uh, i said that um the communication of ideas with an emphasis on how you kind of had something similar but uh when it came to the emphasis on how or the ideas you said uh at the highest possible level um and you know this isn't like I don't find this to be like the most pleasant kind of conversation to have, but you know, it is important to have like, like, like what do we mean by the highest? Like what is the highest and, and what prevents somebody else from saying, well, I have this definition of, of, of art and I think that, you know, uh, this, I think that this, I think a series of poems that are just talking about rollerblading, for example, like I'm just obsessed with rollerblading. I love rollerblading. I'm going to only write about this one thing over and over and over again. I yeah. think that's the highest expression of like the human condition. Um, what, uh, uh, like, like how, how do we deal with that set of objections? Like how would you deal with that? And, and what do you mean by highest to begin with? Let's maybe start with that. Sure. So, um, what what I mean by highest, I, th I think I can break it down into a couple different levels. Uh -huh. So number one is uh, the highest level of which the artist is capable in in terms of their own capacities, right? So, so this integrates well with the ideas we're talking about right now, um, right? So at, at the highest level of which you are capable at that period in your life and at that level of maturity, uh, in your artistic growth, uh, what should be growth over time, right? And, and the hope being, uh, and, and art is one of also kind of the, it, it benefits from the idea that you can improve and should improve over a lifetime. It's very different from something like uh, athletics, right? I mean, you ask what other pursuits uh, we, we've taken on in life, like tennis has always been a, a big part of my life, my entire life. Mm -hmm. I still play today. It's you know kind of my preferred method of exercise and uh, and I really, really enjoy it. It provides me these flow or peak experiences pretty often and so forth. Um, but, but, you know, my window, I'm, I just turned 30, my window to have ever been a professional tennis player would have been the past decade, pretty much, yeah. right, 20 to 30. Um, and so that's already over now. People are playing longer these days, whatever. But you know what I'm saying? Uh, my, my hope right now is that as an artist, I'm on the very front edge of mm -hmm. uh, hopefully another 30, 40, 50 years uh, if my brain and my body cooperate uh, and continuing to get better during that time, right? So uh, the highest level with your own capacities and then the, the, the highest level in, in terms of an objective attempt to what you said in some of your comments to me and Maslow calls rubricize things, um, maybe just evaluate or criticize them um, and and then the the acting of this secondary creativity that Maslow talks about, 
which is the the hammer and chisel on your primary activities marble, right? This mm-hmm. this initial thing that you have that you then work on, and I don't know that I can articulate it incredibly well in this moment, other than this, which is it seems to me that over time, you and I have talked about this, other people have talked about it, uh, time being the great leveler, that humanity kind of has this this built-in sense of what's actually good, right? Uh, what, yeah. what at least has a crack at ending up on a gallery wall or uh, as part of the Criterion collection for films, or it's not that every one of them is great, but you know what I mean, right? Uh, yeah. Um, uh, Fast and Furious 8 isn't going to be in that collection. So uh, there is there is kind of this, uh, we've built a framework over time as a species, and and as long as now we've had art as as something that we do, uh, to, to evaluate. And so that's, that's simply what I mean by it. You know, the, 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 the best effort that the best critics and best artists can make at saying, here's something that actually succeeds, here's something that succeeds somewhat, and here's something that fails. You know, I'm, I'm talking about at least art being the effort to reach that highest plane, uh, and then still, you know, some things that could benefit other people if, if they have scraps or, you know, some steps up the ladder at least toward that highest plane. And then things that can kind of just be, you know, more or less appreciated for simple enjoyment or nostalgia or whatever that they bring that, you know, are maybe technically in the realm of, of art, but, but we can all agree are not the best form of it. Uh, comic books or, you know, whatever, whatever you want to use uh, for those kind of examples. Um, let me read through my notes here real quick. And um, yeah, we've, we've talked about several of these things. I'm, I'm starting, you know, continuing to scroll from the top. Um, so, so maybe, maybe one thought here from my note that does sort of revolve around some things you just said. Um, would be that you know when we're trying to to eventually and you know have that secondary creativity uh, that Maslow talks about um, enter in that that can be really challenging too because it, I think first of all um, I said this to you in my show notes like the artist is the only one who can do that for their own work until the the very end. Right until the final paint is applied or the final punctuation mark is put on the the writing, they're responsible for this. Now, I guess you know maybe in the case of writing, you could have editors or something if you're working through a publisher or whatever. But um, but really, you're predominantly responsible for it. So if the artist themselves is not doing a great job of this, um, then then that that can present some problems. You know, uh, once we get further down the line. But then the other thing that happens is, okay, now it is out in the public arena, and if if something is, you know, and again, this kind of talks speaks to what I was just mentioning a few minutes ago with this inherent sense, or, or this maybe sense we've built into ourselves over time now, that some things are just better than others. Um, it, like, the number of people who are going to engage with difficult you know, high art that's, let's say, adult literature, uh, you know, Moby Dick or um, whatever else you want to pick, you know, Wallace Stevens' poems. Uh, this is already a small group of people, 
in general compared to those who take art as entertainment. Uh, you know, today more than ever, right? So just something that I can turn to that feels good or it's escapism and it's fun and that's all it is though. Um, you know, this we're trusting a, a pretty small group of people eventually who care enough to even engage with these more difficult uh, and important and potentially great works to then do mm -hmm. the right thing and, and make the correct judgments. And so when, when there's disagreement and and that seems like a difficult process for those even attempting to do it. I think that it can create some like sense of disillusionment with the wider public on stuff, uh, at least in that moment, right? Like in that time until maybe while that artist is still alive or the, the work is still pretty fresh or whatever until we get a pretty long period of time by which to judge it and enough voices to chime in about it. Uh, and so, you know, that that's a difficult thing. Um, it, it, but what I would say is that it's pretty clear that the greatest artists have a much higher success rate or hit rate with their own secondary creativity, right? They've developed some kind of, of mm -hmm. process. Uh, it's personalized to them and their own medium and their own perceptions and their ideas, um, but, but they have forged that within themselves so that in, in a sense, you know, by creating a great work at all, they know some of the force uh, who are going to sit there and evaluate it. Um, and, and it, in, in some ways, you know, can, can kind of explain itself or exist within itself. Uh, but then we do eventually still have to, you know, talk about it in more concrete terms and really uh, everything from craft to imagination to uh, originality to, you know, density and, and all these other things. So... Uh, those are just some thoughts that were kind of bubbling up while you were, while you were just talking. Um, in terms of, of other notes, um, I think that, that that point right there also works in something we, I don't know if we'll touch on this more later, but, uh, but this, this idea of resolution within the person and that being part of self-actualization and self-actualized people living their lives that you can take discordant things but mesh them together in some way that even if it doesn't, you know, out and out make sense, so to speak, um, it works mm -hmm. for you and your life. So in this case, uh, the selfishness of the artist, right, just creating because you feel compelled to, mm -hmm. because it brings you pleasure, because you get this peak experience or many peak experiences while you're creating this thing, uh, maybe at lower levels if you're still, like, focused on these deficiency needs, you want fame, you want sex from somebody uh, that admires you, I mean, whatever, right? But, uh, but there are selfish motives built in. But at the same time, there's unselfishness, right? Like, it, I think you can tell, especially when great artists don't pander to people, and they create this thing, and they put it out there, and maybe explain it somewhat, but they're not going to be, you know, a, a postmodern author, and, you know, David Foster Wallace footnote the whole thing mm -hmm. to explain it around they make and whatever because you just probably wouldn't get it otherwise uh, let me you know let me explain all of this mm -hmm. to you you peon <laughs> kind of thing right yeah. like through great art you just you create it you put it out there you communicate these ideas they do um, improve people's lives I mean maybe not in the the most direct sense right it's not the same as getting the health care that you need to stay alive but uh, but mm -hmm. these are the things that mean the most 
to a lot of to a lot of people in the end now whether again they're selecting like the best possible pieces of art uh to interact with it still ends up being something that i think for most people is among the most meaningful if not the most meaningful things to them especially maybe when they're in their later stages of life and reflecting on things um mm. right so you you do bring enjoyment to people so that selfishness and, and unselfishness is kind of resolved um and and that's just one example but uh but I think it's an important, an important point, very important point within Maslow's book. Uh, even if you can't explain it particularly well, uh, I think you you know that's happening. Uh, mm. You know, as you're working on something, and so yeah, yeah, that's I think that's important to remember. Yeah, and what you said about selfishness. I mean, we have like a, a quote here. Um, uh, I had some comments on that, so. Uh, when he characterizes these kinds of resolutions, uh, this is this is what he says: um, at the higher levels of human maturation, many dichotomies, polarities, and conflicts are fused, transcended, or resolved. Self-actualizing people are simultaneously selfish and unselfish. Dionysian and Apollonian, individual and social, rational and irrational, fused with others and detached from others. Also, do I find this as a strong tendency in the full cognition of the object? The more we understand the whole of being, the more we can tolerate the simultaneous existence and perception of inconsistencies, of oppositions, and of flat contradictions. Um, and so, like, just to comment on one aspect of that, uh, you mentioned selfishness, and you know. So here's the thing: like, um, if you decide right that you want to be an artist, and I alluded earlier to uh, you know, having fears of becoming an artist, and uh, maybe uh, we, maybe you, you could give like your own story after this. But I remember, you know, I remember when I was um, like uh, uh, twenty, and I had my first like good poetry, and soon after that, I had my first uh, good prose, and then soon after that, I had my first uh, novel, and it turned out to be a, a good novel. Um, I remember thinking, okay, if this is the road that I'm going down on, uh, I understand already how much time this takes, how much energy this takes, how difficult it is to continue challenging yourself in this way, and how much um, time this takes away from everything else in your life. You're going to have to be, you know, like, I'm not saying that you have to, like, necessarily be, like, the deadbeat father. <laughs> Or you know the, the or like the bad hu husband. You know I'm married. I don't think I'm a bad husband. I feel like I'm uh, attentive. I you know I, I do what I need to do in terms of having a you know a, a healthy uh, mature ma marriage that gets better and not worse over time. Um, but you know uh, my wife understands that uh, uh, I need a lot of time alone, and she she also needs a lot of time alone. So like it, it works in that sense. But you know not not every artist is necessarily necessarily going to be you know married to somebody or relationship with somebody that uh, understands that like you need time to be alone not just like for the writing itself but you know to then think about what you did to watch a movie and then like not mm -hmm. even talk about it um you know uh, 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 last night uh, i watched uh, ikaru uh with my wife uh, it was one of my favorite films um and uh, th this 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 line really stuck out uh, uh the, the, the narrator, like the overvoice, says, the best way to protect what you have in life is to do nothing. Huh. 
right? And that was like supposed to be, be about, you know, all the kind of like, you know, the, the bureaucracy that the protagonist found himself in and like everybody else around him. It's like, you know, for them to get ahead and for them to protect even what they have, like they have to just sit and do nothing. And this is the exact opposite in the art. Mm -hmm. You have to do something. But for you to do that something, like you, you work in isolation. People don't see the fruits of your labors unless they actually read your novels. So like you need to have that selfishness, right? But at the same time, can't just be selfish right because pure selfishness could be could look like you know i'm just gonna sit here i'm gonna construct like a, an enneagram type five i'm gonna construct this world and i'm just gonna live in it and fuck everybody else and fuck the world you can't say as an artist fuck the world like you have to be on some level you're not writing for yourself this is just a dumb cliche you yes. are writing for the world you are writing for uh, uh, somebody else to connect with it, to understand it, to build off of it. You're all you're doing as a writer, whether you're the greatest writer in the history of the planet, or you're like somewhere you know in between good and bad, or whether just like all around excellent, but maybe you're never going to be a truly great artist. All that you're doing is you're just building the infrastructure for the rest of the world to build off of later on. That's all it is, right? You're just mm -hmm. building for the sake of building because the opportunity is there, because the universe has so many gaps and niches and because you happen to be able to as some kind of like primordial ooze you're able to like fill in that niche fill in that gap so you can't be purely selfish it looks selfish from the outside but you know i i've often thought before like hey you know like like in some ways it wouldn't have been nice if i wasn't uh an artist like if i never had talent, right like i'm sure you think that way and you know it's an immature thought to have if you were to actually act on it but it's also a very human thought to have in the sense that you think okay i could have worked more on my career worked more on whatever right yep. um i could have you know you know like anything like fill, fill in the blank with anything other than art you know you could have had more of that and um you know uh uh, uh, uh you know uh so so the selfishness like it can't it can't be the defining feature of your art right same thing with, with like other uh, you know, bad emotions or bad uh, uh, ideas like revenge, right? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot in in what you just said there, but uh, uh, yeah, generally I would be on that same uh, path with you. The compassionate path is a really important one to take. Um, you know, as as you're interacting with with people uh, across several different cross sections. I mean, uh, you know, in in this instance, you're taught someone who's upset because you criticized a critic uh, that they liked. I mean, it, yeah. you know, it's very different from, uh, for example, you criticizing works of his own, right? His own artwork and just mm -hmm. coming out and saying, well, I just don't think it's that particularly good and here's why. You know, at any rate, it's it's just interesting because the important thing, though, is is to still not have some kind of self-righteousness, right? So so even though I can't, I haven't personally had those attitudes and haven't uh, acted upon them obviously can't really act on them if you don't have them but but the ability to still try to take a couple steps back and understand maybe that i was who knows again a couple lucky breaks away from being someone like that and uh being perpetually frustrated by either you know having the ability to actually be an artist myself or if i think i do and i attempt to i'm never uh successful or then even I am successful for a bit, whether that's in like monetary terms or notoriety or actual 
artistic success, I create something good or great, but then regress or never move on past that uh, and stay camped, you know, in, in this comfortable place, and on and on. I mean, there's so many different forms it can take. But even if you don't experience those things for yourself, the importance of the, the ability to try to, to understand it uh, and and meet that person where they're at to a certain extent, uh, I do think is important. And then I think that, that doing that and those kind of attitudes hopefully create longer term more engagement from from people, right? Uh, that, that if you're going to be the kind of person, let's say it's like you or I, who is going to to try to objectively have some way to uh, break down and, and put tears to artworks uh, and, and claim that that actually is a thing. It's not all just subjective. But then you are uh, compassionate and you are uh, willing to have a conversation and welcome a conversation, even with someone, who has, someone whose ideas you don't agree with uh, in whole or in part. Uh, hopefully it creates you know, a better environment for more people to engage with great art because it's because artists, I mean, it's it's one of the most um, you know ivory towered things in the world, right? In terms of elitism, and uh, but not the right kind of elitism, right? Just uh, a desire to, to wall people out and claim that that it's beyond you know most people or so and so's understanding, and uh, never even come here to engage with it at all for that reason. So uh, to to desire more engagement. One, you made a point that I was going to make about this whole uh, idea of continuing to, to build and you do hopefully overcome your fears and keep, keep it moving, knowing still that, okay, I can't say knowing, but hoping and feeling most likely that you will eventually be, be surpassed, right? Um, yeah. I'm still just one link in the cosmic chain. I'm going to max out my own capacities. Uh, and one thing that, that Maslow talks about that I relate to very strongly, I'll actually read a quote on this, is your capacities become your values. Uh, yeah. they, they, be, they become what drives you. And he says it, uh, he says it this way. Let me, let me find this real quick. Page 146. In, in my edition, at least. I don't know which edition you have. Um, he says, so people with intelligence must use their intelligence. People with eyes must use their eyes. People with the capacity to love have the impulse to love and the need to love in order to feel healthy. Capacities clamor to be used and cease their clamor only when they are used sufficiently. That is to say, capacities are needs and therefore are intrinsic values as well. And I think this is an important point. To the extent that capacities differ so will values all differ, right? So I think that, that speaks to some of what we're talking about here. And it eventually extends out into other things in the broader world, right? Um, to many people, they just will never care about art at all. And part of that is because it's not with their cities. Yeah. Um, and, and so instead, they're going to build a tech company or they're going to be a doctor or whatever, right? Uh, and, and move down that road. So um, anyway, I, my final point on this too is just that... Um, when we're talking about selfishness and, and to a certain extent, you know, those motives and you still tr try to understand how you can uh, be present for other people in your life and not, not just be a selfish bastard, you know, all the time. Like, when I get away from me, I don't want to say ever because I need to be in my cave, you know, creating things. Um, one of the, the ways in which, like, creating and being an artist is selfish, but I think is, is still actually intrinsically good, and I would hope for most people that they can feel this 
in, in some way in their life is that these experiences, uh, the peak experiences that Maslow speaks of, are good in and of themselves. Right? He talks about moving to this attitude we're not judging this experience you're having or this thing that you're creating in any any real context. Uh, you're just you're just flowing, right? It's like Mihai Csikszentmihalyi's uh, book Flow that we mentioned briefly in the intro, and you and I both read years ago. And spit these ideas. Um, same way, like a, a couple other books that I mentioned to you, one that we both agreed on, Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain, right, by Betty Edwards, uh, that teaches you perception, and it's very pleasant. You know, I mean, it, when, when you're drawing something, and I, the reason I didn't really move forward with the drawing is because uh, while I did learn to, to draw or learn that I came uh, from her book and the exercises, and it's, it is pleasurable and fun, I just don't think I'm particularly talented at it. So I made a decision to move off of that. That's another thing, right? I could have just decided to be a perpetually frustrated and upset non-good painter or non-good draftsman because mm-hmm. I found this and it feels good, but I'm not actually good at it. Uh, another one for me is the inner game of tennis. Uh, obviously, it pertains to athletics, but it speaks to the same kind of thing that Edwards talk about, you know, a, a one version of a self and another version of a self, and attempting to quiet the typically more critical, you know, uh, trying to contextualize everything that happens to you, part of yourself and your brain, and letting this other self that is, it's another thing Maslow talks about, quiet much more easily pushed away, um, and 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 it, you know you need you need to fan this flame. It's really just an ember a lot of the time in our lives because you're you know you're carrying on doing your normal thing, you know going about groceries and work and uh, talking to people and whatever. So you you do have to be selfish to to fan that ember, fan that flame, and create something from it. But it is also just very. Uh, it feels. I don't know, kind of like wholesome, I guess is a good word, right? Like you're in this experience and it's just like, it actually, it feels good. It's something in life that is positive. Uh, um, and and you kind of just sense that. Uh, it doesn't mean you have to be working on a thing that talks about positive things necessarily, right? I think people misconstrue that sometimes too. Um, you can be talking about, you know, negative emotions, experiences, events, but if you're doing it well uh, as an artist, it feels good to you, and then other people eventually latch on to that, and they can relate to it, uh, and and that's part of why you're doing it. Yeah, and, you know, when you're in this uh, flow state, um, I, I'd say a defining feature of it is you would never, ever, ever think in the middle of a flow state like this when you're like working at your peak capacities, you will never ever think like fuck. I should be doing something else no, now. Right. That would never cross your mind. Like, they're, they're, like, like, it, in that moment, that particular moment was built specifically for this thing that you're doing. There's, there's, there's nothing else that should be done, mm-hmm. right? Like, this, this, this is it. That this is all that it is. Um, and, you know, you, you can't always be in that state. But, you know, like assuming that you write every single day, uh, and assuming that you have, you know, some level of talent. You will probably get into a flow state um, level uh, every day then. Um, and, you know, it, it, com- it, it comes and goes depending on the situation. Like when I was uh, last week, I was uh, just watching a, a bunch of movies back to back. Um, and one thing that I sometimes do when I'm like planning out something I'm going to write, uh, like, with, like with this novel, 
Um, I, I, I watch a bunch of movies. I have like a notepad with me and any, anything that strikes me as though I could use this for like a piece of dialogue. I could use this for like a scene of some sort. Um, uh, suddenly like chapters would come to me. Uh, and, and, you know, that also is, you know, I love to plan shit like, you know, type five i love to plan shit so planning out novels to me is like you know it's almost as pleasurable as actually you know sitting down and 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 uh actually mm-hmm. writing the novel um so you could get a flow state just from like you know planning that activity that you want to do like it comes to you and you just you see like oh and when this chapter is like fully developed it's going to look like this it's going to be this feature especially especially if like let's say you're watching a movie or you're listening to like some music um, I, I had this like feeling recently. I was listening to something, and this guy in this like uh, uh, on this album, he he decides to make like uh, uh, a skit that's like you know based on like uh, uh, like acquiring a gun, and he ultimately takes that idea into such a cliche direction, like with gun. I'm like, this is like this this could so this this is a perfect setup for and then i i the the idea immediately went ahead this is how like the chapter needs to be like um because, yeah, yeah. because i because i see how it could be made better right um and, you know you, you have to you have to always you know anything that anything in life you like you have to have to use it and i'm learning this more and more now like use everything in your life everything that you come across not just like the ideas you consume like with or whatever but anything that you see like you have to turn that somehow into art like how many times like do you think like wow like i'm thinking uh you know you could be something you could, you could be doing something very kind of like prose but suddenly you're doing it or you're thinking about it in a way that um, you know you think nobody else really thinks about it but unless you put it into a book it's not going to matter who cares that you had that thought right who cares that you had mm-hmm. this like unique insight to like uh a see story like if it doesn't fucking go anywhere like if, if if you don't make anything out of these experiences you know that's really the ultimate selfishness right like if you're like you know you're saying i'm not gonna write a book i'm just gonna go upstairs and enjoy you know uh this uh sunday with my wife i mean that's a positive and you know uh, perhaps good in and of itself experience but if that's where it ends and you don't turn those experiences into something for the world to consume and to build off of you know that's the ultimate selfishness right so you know artists again they're selfish but they're also not and Michael says like there there has to be this kind of you know uh, immediate fusion of the two and it, it has to be seamless it has it has to it has to be there mm-hmm. yeah yeah for sure and one uh, one other point I'm looking at in my notes here, uh, just a little further down from from these points that we're talking about, um, is another one of these resolutions. So you know we've talked a lot now about the selfishness, unselfishness one, uh, but an, another that I definitely can relate to. Uh, and I would say you know it's both when I'm uh, you know searching out and taking photographs and then uh, eventually making prints and. That kind of thing, and, and also with writing, and when you know that you've eventually arrived at uh, at a good piece of run, is this uh, the, the granular and the cosmic mm-hmm. also resolving themselves well? Um, oh, yeah, yeah. And 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 I think that also plays into this selfishness, unselfishness. Right? So it's for you, but it's for a bigger thing as well. It's it's for a larger context. Um, but I, I definitely like when you're in that flow state or engaged with like that, you know, non-judgmental B cognition side of yourself. Uh, 
health. Um, it definitely seems to, it seems that all the world could be this one moment and this one moment could be all the world. Um, it, 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 of course, you can add on to that, build off of it, um, and, and continue to, to make it something different. The pull quote I had from the book was this, Maslow says, um, a paradox with which we must deal, difficult though it is, is found in the conflicting reports of perception of the world. In some reports, particularly the mystic or religious or philosophical, the whole of the world is seen as a unity, as a single rich live entity. In other of the peak experiences, most particularly the love experience and the aesthetic experience, one small part of the world is perceived as if it were for the moment all of the world. Uh, and, and so, you know, I definitely, like, that was kind of like a put-the-book-down uh, moment while I was reading. Like, yeah, you know, that, that very nicely articulates that feeling in the, the peak experience or, or the consistent self-actualizer, right? Like you're talking about, even in the, 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 the work-a-day, the, the kind of drudgery part of trying to make art mm-hmm. um, and, and just trying to be true to that, which I'm, I'll be the first to admit I'm definitely not always good about. I... My whole life, I've unfortunately, you know, been a good procrastinator, <laughs> and so I'm I'm much too capable of putting off things I know I should do, uh, and then like kind of scrambling at them instead of, you know, being consistent. And I need to get better at that. But, but, uh, but and this procrastination, I'm sure, also in your case, as it is in mine, like it could be very fucking elaborate procrastination. Oh yeah, right. It could be yeah. as elaborate as I'm gonna start this website, and then I'm gonna go down this like. Uh, a wormhole of like just talking about uh, politics and just engaging with that and nonstop instead of like reading as, as much fiction as I should. Here I am like reading like, you know, stories and analyses and, you know, bullshit that doesn't matter, you know. Um, so uh, you know, it's especially that right? we can we can so easily um, and it, like e- even not just like in term even to people who are not procrastinators, uh, you know, Maslow would say like you could have these like flow states potentially in situations that are not even, um, you know, like something you would necessarily build from, like uh, the, the, this this idea of like, you know, uh, uh, the, everything becomes the world and this thing is the world itself. Everything is both small and big at the same time. You know, like John Donne, when he was doing like, uh, like some of the like romantic poetry, uh, I think it, I think the, po- I think it's in the poem, The Sun Rising, where he's like, you know, um, uh, and make a uh, this little room in everywhere, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Uh, like th- this room that he's sharing with w- with his lover, it becomes an everywhere, right? It becomes the wor- world, um, and uh, you could easily have, have things even that like even feel like flow states in some regards, but you know, a, a true flow state, I-, I I don't think there's anything that that's comparable. You can't mistake it for for something else. Yeah, I would agree with that, um, and and I, I think that eventually this also plays back into the fear uh, topic that we've discussed uh, at pretty good length already. And what I was thinking to a certain extent when uh, when I read that quote that I just read uh, from Maslow for the first time I was reading the book, and then reflecting on this intrinsic conscience and intrinsic guilt, you know that that drives you forward when you're using it positively and kind of destroys you when uh, you let it get out of hand and maybe get in a negative place. Uh, eventually it comes back around because 
when, especially with art, you know, when you're creating something and you feel that, that click, right, and, and things are settling in, they're getting good, there is a godlike feeling, right, that, that, um, that sense of, uh, I'm, I'm getting this, right, like it's coming together for me. And, and to a certain extent, you kind of lose it uh, as soon as maybe you kind of exit the, the right state of being or mind and, and start thinking about it. That's another thing from, uh, from this book you know, be in the zone in athletics, right? The minute you realize you're in the zone, you're not in it anymore kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. but, but what it made me think of, just this idea is like, wow, you know, the, uh, well, a couple things. Um, you, you know, in one as in a unity, it made me think of Yellow Afternoon, the Wallace Stevens poem, mm-hmm. uh, which I mentioned to you in some of our notes we exchanged. Um, but it also made me think of, of Nietzsche and thus spoke Zarathustra where, you know, you have this like, if you can do this thing, you must do this thing, and you have to devote your whole life to doing this thing. But then, if you do so, you you, you know become more powerful in a sense. You become more godlike, yeah. and then there's a fear of that, though, right? So, like the yeah. the the beauty and the great feel that you get from a peak experience and a flow state uh, does create fear, and I think it's part of at least for me uh, why eventually it creates procrastination. Uh, whether I'm realizing it and framing it that way all the time or not, I think it does happen, uh, which sounds probably strange, maybe to some people who are, are like listening to this, but, um, but I think everyone maybe has that in certain arenas of their life, you know, where you're getting it right, you're getting it right, and then you realize that you were most wholly yourself, you were clicking at max capacity for a while there, uh, that felt great, I should keep doing that, but also like, what would my life become if I do that all the time? And do it consistently is the whole yeah. current architecture of my life about yeah. to crumble because now I have this responsibility. Now I am called to act upon yeah. it. creates a fear. Yeah, Nietzsche has this a quote where he says, um, "You know, I, I abhor any of these like moralities that are based on prohibitions. What, what I want is a morality that tells you to do one thing." and do it so well that you only do this one thing and that you sleep and you dream about it. You wake up and you wake up to it and this is all you do, right? Why have a morality based on that? And you know, that is just, that is just so true. And we have like more Nietzsche to, to get into a, a mm-hmm. down the road. Uh, but uh, I mean, we've been going for over two hours now. You want to take yeah, a I was just going to say, let's maybe take a break, uh, grab, grab some more water and then we well, can we'll, transition. Yeah. Yeah, we'll first. edit it out. Just let it just just let it roll. Cool. Yeah. Okay. See you in a minute. All right. So we we cut off uh, mid uh, sentence there, um, but you know, let's just let's just get to some more of the uh, the poems and some of the other stuff we have here. Um, sure. What do you want to tackle next? We have uh, I mean, we have like a few left. Yeah, why don't we do, um, let's do one of the poems, and then the Sistine Chapel Bosch, and then the other poem to kind of just give it a little bit of rhythm there. Um, Uh, So yeah, let's let's do Archaic Torso, might as well. Yeah, so I mean, this this has always been like, you know, it's been a a classic, I feel like, for anyone in the uh, Cosmoetica uh, orbit. Um, Yeah. it, It appeared, I think... I think a couple of movies, but to me, most prominently, it figured in Another Woman, 
uh, mm -hmm. where um, Jenna Rollins's character uh, was, you know, she was in a situation where she thought that she needed to change her life, which is incidentally what the poem is about and the kind of stuff that we've been talking about. Um, so do you want to, do you want to read that one? I feel like I've been reading a lot. Yeah, sure. I can, uh, I can read it. I have it right here. Just give me one second. And it should be said, I am working from the Stephen Mitchell uh -huh. translation. Is that the same one you have? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's what I have. Okay, sure. So I will go ahead and read it. Archaic Torso of Apollo by Reiner Maria Rilke. We cannot know his legendary head with eyes like ripening fruit, and yet his torso is still suffused with brilliance from inside, like a lamp in which his gaze, now turned to low, gleams in all its power. Otherwise, the curved breast could not dazzle you so, nor could a smile run through the placid hips and thighs to that dark center where procreation flared. Otherwise, this stone would seem defaced beneath the translucent cascade of the shoulders and would not glisten like a wild beast's fur, would not, from all the borders of itself, burst like a star, for here there is no place that does not see you. You must change your life. So it's a, a sonnet and a pretty short poem, but packed with packed with greatness. Yeah, I mean, and ju just uh, again for the uninitiated, this is one of the greatest sonnets ever written. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, like to me, it's not even it's not even a debate. Although I, I am open. To, to having this and any other debate for that matter. Um, do you have like any uh, responses in terms of uh, what we've been talking about? Sure. So uh, again, I'll go off of a few of my written comments here to help give some structure to these thoughts. But uh, in terms of what we're talking about with Maslow and self-actualization, I, I think that this poem actually, um, besides just being a, a great poem and a great work of art in and of itself, it works in this context as an example on three different levels. Uh, I'm open to you telling me you, you think otherwise. But um, first, you know, Rilke himself would have had a peak experience or series of peak experiences and been practicing integrated creativity to write this, mm -hmm. right? Uh, to create a great artwork, there must be that, that primal instinct, the primary creativity. Um, maybe he had this flash of insight at a museum or wherever he saw this statue. Maybe it was a remembered moment. We don't really know, unless you know, unless there's some kind of uh, evidence for that. But at any rate, he, he had to have the initial insight. He had probably had to get something down and then work at it and work at it to refine it. Uh, second, the poem is on the surface about him reflecting on observing another artwork. Mm -hmm and the thoughts and feelings that it creates in him. And so art is a catalyst for his peak experience, in a way. So maybe he had one observing this artwork, and then he translates that later on to his own artwork uh, in, in response. And then third, the poem speaks to the reader directly. Uh, obviously at the end, you know, this very famous last line, and there's an urge to examine and change your life. Uh, it can be related to Maslow's thoughts on what constitutes a worthwhile life, and he's also, even in a way, and maybe this is a, you know, part 3.5 or part 4, uh, that I, on ways I think this poem works, 
he's also urging the reader to use art and creation as a source of inspiration and a catalyst for this change. You know, he's serving as an example of that. And so uh, on, a, on another sub-level, you know, we as the reader can say, maybe I should go to the Art Institute of Chicago or, you know, the Guggenheim or whatever and look at some art or watch a film or read more of Roca's poems or whatever it may be uh, that, could, that could drive you toward, uh, you know, some of your own peak experiences and, and self-actualization in life. So that's my take on it. Yeah. Um, one thing I, I would say to add to that is, uh, um, you know, we are uh, just talking about something that's, uh, or or the narrator is is talking about something that's just completely, you know, disconnected. We aren't talking about a, uh, a you know, archaic torso of Apollo, right? We're not dealing with faces. We're not dealing with any sort of like obvious expressions. We're not mm-hmm. dealing with any kind of like, you know, a utility we could point to. Like, the, you know, these are just cues. And, um, you know, looking at this work of art, even though that it's, you know, even if it's like stripped of what it once was, uh, there are enough cues here and that kind of like generalized abstraction um, for the narrator to say, you know, this is enough, right? This is enough for you to have to change your life. Um, <laughs> and, you know, yeah. in, in terms of like, you know, the, the writing itself, uh, you know, like all these lines are pretty much like every line is, 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 uh, uh, memorable, right? So opening line, like mm-hmm. we cannot know his legendary head, right? Um, I mean, like yeah. just, the, just that phrase legendary head, right? So, so, uh, rich with implication, uh, eyes yep. like ripening fruit, right? You, you always get this kind of like cliche of, um, you know, the blossom on the cheek, the faded rose, uh, you have like you know the the apple of the of the eye, right? Um, mm-hmm. This is this is put to a completely different uh, set of context, right? There is there is supposed to be something frightening about this. There is supposed to be something um, that 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 goads you beyond like you know uh, the kind of normal associations you would make with something like this. Um, For sure, uh, his his torso is still suffused with brilliance from inside right he's you know saying that you know uh, we don't have the head right we just have this uh, like a lamp in which his gaze now turned to low you know i i can't comment on the original uh, german obviously um mm-hmm. but you know i've i've often wondered about what this is literally you know so like a lamp in which his gaze comma now turned to low on the one hand like you know you could have a, a lamp that's sort of you know turned to a, a lower light um uh, you could have like an averted lowered gaze, um, but this is all being imagined, right? This is not, you know, this is this is the narrator imbuing like all of this to him. It's like the, this frightful material um, into the torso, right? Like it, it mm-hmm. you know, you, you get the sense that uh, this could have, you know, there, there could have been some other situation, some other kind of artistic item that creates this kind of interchange, but. Um, it just so happens to have uh, rested on on the torso, and there's there's something oddly appropriate about it being, uh, you know, just missing a head, right? We don't we don't we don't get that sense. We don't get the face. All we have to work on is these kinds of like you know uh, little little cues and little clues, right? That this is all that we're getting, and and we have to be satisfied with that. And you know, when it comes to some of the the best art. 
um, not everything is explicitly stated. It, it can be, and it still could be great art, but, um, you know, uh, people do take this opinion all the time, right? Like you have to, uh, show art, not tell it, you know, this may be wrong, but th there's a <laughs> reason why so many people believe this. And so many people believe that probably because, um, when you look at some of the greatest examples of, of art, you know, in, in world history, some of it is, you know, it, it does show, not tell. Right. Um, and, and, and it's very easy to get carried away, away with that perspective. Um, and you yeah. know, he has this, like, uh, it, it's, it's, it, it gets to be fairly complex rhetoric, right? Uh, it starts with otherwise and otherwise is, is repeated. So, uh, he's saying that th this torso, this head cannot look at you. Um, uh, otherwise the curved breast could not dazzle you. So nor could a smile run through the placid hips and thighs to that dark center where procreation flared. Um, and I have often wondered also like the, the meaning behind placid hips, right? He's sort of like, he's kind of like defanging it of, of, um, you know, some of that kind of like, uh, uh procreative, uh, uh, power, right? Uh, he's defanging right. it, but he's defanging it while also just sort of implying that it's still there, right? Like we could say that the hips are placid, you know, it's not moving. This is a statue, but we know that it's placid merely because of that fact, right? That it's a statue. Otherwise we know that this is where that dark procreation would have flared, right? We can tell just by that appearance alone. Um, mm -hmm. And he, again, he has, he has that rhetoric again, otherwise, this stone would seem to face beneath the translucent cascade of the shoulders and would not glisten like a wild beast fur, would not from all the borders of itself burst like a star, right? So uh, this thing, like, you know, like if you think about this concept of art for art's sake, um, mm -hmm. you know, this, this is the idea, like the, the only boundary that's necessary here, right? The only corners are necessary here. Uh, is that right? It, it, it is that statue. It is even, you know, a piece of that statue. It speaks for itself. It justifies itself. And, you know, there's not many things in the world, uh, that are very self-justifying to begin with, but art, you know, is almost innately self-justifying. Um, mm -hmm. and it, it's self-justifying because you know that as soon as like a great work of art has been created, um, probably over enough, a period of time, um, it can't be averted, right? Like it can't be avoided. It's going to make its way into society. It's going to change that society somehow. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, of course the, 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 uh, ending lines for here, there is no place that does not see you, right? Um, you, you cannot escape this, even, even with a missing head, you can't escape yeah. this gaze. You know, it's yeah. like, it's like Nietzsche's, Nietzsche's uh, demon is coming back and saying, you know, are you okay, you know, with uh, either you or somebody else observing you, you know, at your best and at your worst over and over and over again, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, the greatest art, it does, it does make you naked before it, right? Um, it, it, it does like strip away everything that's non-essential, everything that is silly, everything that is, that, that, that is childish and, and, and goes nowhere, right? And I mean, th yeah. this poem is there to represent that. And, and of course, like the, the famous ending line, um, you must change your life, you know, perfect ending and not just a perfect en ending, but, but, but just a, a great ending for, um, just this kind of, you know, argument that he's been building and building and building. And instead of like, you know, I could imagine, uh, a, a lesser poet sort of ending it with like, 
more rhetoric, more justification, more argumentation. There is no argument anymore. He just matter of factly tells you you must change your life, right? This is this is how it ends. Um, uh, yeah. So th those th that would be my commentary on on the poem. And of course, yep. you know, I, I've read, I've read, I've read this uh, poem uh, many times before. So you know, a lot of this has been in my head uh, pretty much for, you know, f from the beginning. Um, but yeah, a uh, great sonnet, uh, one of the greatest sonnets, and definitely one of my uh, favorites. Yeah, fantastic. Way. Yep. Um, so I think uh, we're done with that poem. You you want to get to. Uh, yeah, the Sistine Chapel. Sure. Yeah, Sistine Chapel from Michelangelo. Well, predominantly him with the ceiling. Yeah. Right. Uh, some other Renaissance artists working on other frescoes throughout it, but then uh, yeah, that yeah. that artwork taken in its totality against uh, someone like Hieronymus Bosch, who I still think is highly overlooked. Yeah. Uh, you know, when you look back at this period and, and underappreciated, uh, he's one that I've, I've, you know, both recognized his artwork as great and uh, we'll see what you think. In my opinion, in some ways, warp speed ahead of his time. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. As much or, or more so than anybody else in certain ways, and I'll, I'll maybe, well, I, I will defend my position on that with a couple points, but... Um, you know, uh, tackling some of the same subject matter in a way, but uh, but doing it in in playful and novel and and interesting and challenging ways. So, uh, do you want to start with with some intro on this? I'm I'm assuming maybe are you going to put like a couple uh, images up for viewers to see it, or just encourage yeah, them to go look I'll, at it on their own? Oh, uh, yeah, I might put them up uh, like you know in between us talking. Um, one thing I'll say, so so the reason why I wanted to uh, talk about this, I was going to do like a st standalone video on this, but I figured, you know, whatever, let's, let's just do this in this conversation. I was watching some um, video from like a uh, graphic designer and it was just titled, uh, why, uh, why is modern art so bad? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, he, he uh, actually made some pretty good points uh, in, in the video as far as like, you know, we were, we were talking earlier about like how, you know, with certain works of art, modern art, um, uh, if you just, let's say, magically take away like any sense of like the person's talent, it's a problem that uh, you, we could have potentially, you know, modern art that, that uh, uh, would look the same even if we like completely omit any question of talent whatsoever. Like, you know, mm -hmm. bringing in a canvas, whether or not like you're some kind of great philosopher and you have some wonderful idea you want to make with a blank can canvas, that in terms of artistic talent takes no artistic talent, right? So there, there is no logical way to distinguish between some modern artworks that are the product of talent versus not. And if that's the case, that kind of calls the entire thing into question. Um, so, uh, his like contrast, right. With modern art, the example that he decided to go with was the Sistine Chapel. And, you know, this just like, you know, um, it, it caused, you know, me to like roll my eyes. Not, not that I think like, you know, the Sistine Chapel is like bad art and, you know, Michelangelo was like bad at what he did. You know, that's, that's not true. Uh, it's just more so that it's such a kind of like trite example, um, when people think of like, you know, what is an example of like, like, you know, a human achievement, 
you know, it's very natural, like, oh, yeah, Sistine Chapel. And this strikes me as like the wrong way to think about it, because the kinds of implications that are, you know, just associated and, and rich with the Sistine Chapel, they kind of take you down the wrong path. So like, first of all, um, the fact that it's just so vast, right? That kind yeah. of gives us unnecessary um, uh, uh, thought, right? That, hey, you know, because it's so vast, like talent is sort of innately associated with like, hey, can you make a painting that's like 12 feet by 12 feet? You know, wouldn't that be wonderful? Uh, I mean, I, 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 I guess, but that doesn't strike me as, as very relevant, right? Um, mm -hmm. So there is like an incorrect association there. The second part of it is is that you alluded to in your discussion of uh, of Bosch. Um, you know, uh, uh, Michelangelo at his best uh, was a great artist, but um, he was also kind of like very limited uh, by his time period. He was very yes. limited by um, uh, the the kind of content and the kind of you know the, the ways that he was like interpreting of religion. You know, he was clearly very very talented in the purely technical sense right um yes. but what okay so i'm gonna just pull this up here as i'm as i'm talking about it and uh we're gonna um put these images up for people but so okay so i i'm kind of ignoring uh uh the Sistine chapel in general i'm just looking at the you know the the most famous part of it in the very ceiling the very top which is yep. the the birth of adam and uh, so, first of all, I, I think this is by far the best part of the. Um, uh, uh, this is this is the best part of, of the painting, and the reason why uh, I think this this is the best part is there's a lot of tension here that is just necessary for the arts, right? Um, we don't know for a fact whether this is Adam being born after being touched by God. We don't know mm -hmm. if, and, and you sort of get that sense where he's sort of kind of like, he looks like he's maybe just awaking. Uh, we don't yep. know if uh, the, the, the fingers touching uh, was like uh, the moment of ensoulment, right? Where uh, God provides a soul to Adam and he was already a body uh, before. Um, and the fact that we don't see the fingers touching, I, I, I think that's so critical to make this work. Like, imagine yeah. how much uh, uh, lesser this, you know, this piece would be if they were like holding hands or something. Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. Like, just, 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 or like, imagine like Christina's world with like uh, at the edge of Christina's world, uh, at the edge of that painting, you see like just like a hint of a wheelchair, right? Like, it just wouldn't work anymore, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, the reason why Christina's world works is. There is something existential about her struggle and her inability to get to wherever she needs to get to across this expansive grass. Here, yeah. the ineffable, ineffable part is we don't exactly know what's going on with this touch. We don't see it, but we feel the tension. We feel the power, right? Um, and you sure. know, th this was th th this this is an example of like a, a great artistic decision, right? This is a legitimately great artistic decision, um, but. When I look at the rest of the Sistine Chapel, um, I just don't, I'm looking at it now, I just don't see anything there. Like, outside mm -hmm. of the birth of Adam, everything else, like, in, in the way that it's portrayed, they're fairly trite representations of, like, well-known biblical stories. Um, and I guess it's kind yep. of different that like, you know, Christ is presented almost, you know, looking like a wrestler, but 
there's nothing like there's nothing inherently you know of uh, 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 artistic value in the way that I just described. There is no moment of tension. There are no like you know uh, decisions that really stand out and are memorable. I think there's a reason why um, of the Sistine Chapel, like the most famous portion of it is the birth of Adam. Like it's not a coincidence. When we were talking about how how society over time. Uh, just makes these kind of uh, artistic decisions for us. Like what what are the artworks that we're going to um, allow for down the line? Um, you know, uh, uh, time has sort of made that decision. You know, when we think of Sistine Chapel, we think of uh, the birth of Adam, right? And and we should, right? This is this is Michelangelo. This is Michelangelo at his best, right? And and you know, it's uh-huh. it, it's always nice if we could remember art and artists uh, at their best. Um, so, uh, that's my, so before I, I even get to, to Bosch and the differences there, and by the way, like, you know, uh, uh, uh the, the one I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to talk about, uh, Bosch's, um, uh, the garden of earthly delights. And that painting was done around the same time as the, uh-huh. the, as the Sistine Chapel and also, but Bosch was also older, right? So, you know, Michelangelo yep. came, came after after Bosch, which is another like fascinating thing, but uh, maybe you should talk about the Sistine Chapel first before we get it gets get into Bosch. Sure. So uh, a couple main thoughts in response to yours. Um, uh, I would say that you know I agree with you that immediately one of the first things that um, makes us you know stand in awe of that artwork is the scale and is the placement you know um, up on the ceiling in all these panels. It, from a technical standpoint, enormously difficult to yeah. pull off, right? I mean, he doesn't just get to stand there with an easel conveniently and, and chip away at it. I, from everything I've ever read, you know, he's basically on some sc- scaffolding on his back by uh, candlelight, you know, working on this, which has probably been exaggerated a little bit, but but seems about right. Um, and, you know, again, I, I'm no great draftsman or painter, I mean, to, to try to conceive of executing that is pretty outlandish, you know, and, yeah. and it deserves props, uh, for sure, from that standpoint. Yeah, but, and, and, and at minimum, uh, this is something that, you know, modern, so much of modern artists has simply not done, right? They're not capable of this, yeah. even at a basic level, right? So this already is, like, way ahead of so much of the art that we see, like, you know, pretty much of any time period in the world, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um and, and then I agree with you, too, on, you know, the birth of Adam is the centerpiece, uh, you know, both literally uh, and just from from the core of an artistic value standpoint of that entire work. Uh, it's, I think this, again, gets a little bit to our earlier um, part of the conversation about, like, this intrinsic or now built-in understanding in some way for, you know, for humanity as a whole on what's the best of something. If you ask somebody... To describe the Sistine Chapel ceiling to you, they would say, "Oh, that's the one where God and and Adam almost touch, right?" I mean, yeah. probably, at least in yeah. part. So, to me, that does get to the idea that that's that's the greatest part of this artwork, um, you know, and and that's what's proliferated the most. Um, but I, but I, you know, you start to ask some other questions and say, "Okay, if we took all of these off of the ceiling." And put them, you know, in a standard gallery as individual panels or works. What starts to happen? 
we start to get pretty standard Renaissance imagery. Yeah. Uh, right. Of yeah. of this is exactly what you said. Of biblical scenes, of things that other artists have been working on in slightly different variations for you know centuries by now. Mm -hmm. um, it's not to say they're not you know well executed. Of course they are, but um, you know it seems to me that even just from a little skimming of like art criticism of the Renaissance, plenty of other people argue for other better painters mm -hmm. from that time than Michelangelo. Yeah. Uh, I don't necessarily feel qualified to comment on the, the technical sides of his versus Raphael's versus you know whoever's painting, but um, anyway, I, I think that's what you have to start to do. You have to start to say, okay, if we take it out of the you know the Vatican and this grand setting, uh, what what becomes of it? And I think it becomes a lesser work. Uh, so people go to this place where you're already primed for awe just because of the nature of where it is and the type of building that it is. And of course, it, it is still a grand mm -hmm. work of art and, and wonderful in certain ways and, uh, and aspirational, no question. You know, it, it, I haven't been there personally. I don't know if you have, but um, I would like to see it, definitely. But um, then I start to, to invert this a little bit too and say, okay, so then what if... What if Bosch's works, what if the Garden of Earthly Delights was as grand of a scale? And I, I don't, I'm sure the dimensions of uh, like that triptych are online here. I haven't yeah, really looked that it's, closely. It's, it's fairly large, but obviously not like the okay. Sistine Chapel. Yeah, so it's large, but not that large. Uh, but if you take that and put it up on the Sistine Chapel ceiling, you know, it... it, it it kind of expands it, but it also, it doesn't need to be up there. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it just, the ideas come through and they're communicated. Obviously, as you just said, it already is a somewhat large-scale work. Um, I'll give you another good example of this, and, and then maybe we can talk about Bosch specifically. Um, but I, I remember this same kind of feeling when I was uh, in Florida some years ago, and I went to the Salvador Dali Museum there mm -hmm. in St. Petersburg. And they had a uh, Picasso Dali side-by-side -side exhibit going through the whole museum. So it was actually a great opportunity to see a ton of both of their work, uh, you know, near one another and kind of intertwined. And they had a few of Dali's largest ever works on display. And, and I think you can still argue that they're, they're great works. But I remember, uh, you know, standing back from them and being like so in awe of the simple scale of the thing. Mm -hmm. that it that then only later was I like but was that the best painting I saw there of his you know like it feels like it in the moment in a way because it's kind of inconceivable that that he could have and in his case you know it's all from imagination too so it's just like yeah. wild uh, that this is what came out of his his brain and his hands but mm -hmm. um, anyway you get what I'm saying there you know it contributed to at first glance uh, like just a visceral reaction and evaluation and only later then can you step in with some more, uh, you know, cogent thoughts on the thing and really evaluate just the ideas being yeah. communicated there. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I think that's, uh, uh, I think that's right. Um, you know, like, like w one thing that I noticed though, is that people, they do kind of like, they they do try to hide behind 
uh, this idea of scale, right? Uh, sometimes, um, you know, sometimes there's like justification, like I'm sure seeing a Dali, like, which is already like a great work of art, um, uh, in, in like some kind of tremendous scale. Like, first of all, it would be very different from the ways that I've normally seen it. Right. Um, if I, uh, for example, like, uh, I'm not sure how I forget the name of the, the, uh, um, painting that has like, it looks like these elephant, like camel, like, figures like i can imagine if that being like you know five times the size of me that that would be you know pretty incredible uh to witness beyond like what i've seen but um you know you should be able to put things in miniature right to see it on a small screen or whatever and 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 get a sense of uh you know this is either badly done or it's or it's you know well done um mm -hmm. I did see, you know, a bunch of, uh, uh, I, I was in Amsterdam a couple of years ago and uh, I saw at the Van Gogh Museum, um, you know, s some of the most famous uh, works by Van Gogh and mm -hmm. the, physically like the way that he just manipulated paint in terms of like uh, uh, putting it on almost as if it's like, almost as if it's like, you know, cement, right? Like making sure that the physical layering of it, caking it on, that it's jutting out of the canvas, that you could physically feel it if you touch it. It would be very rough and it could cut your fingers. Uh, that definitely enhanced it, right? And even now, like if you yeah. if you go to like, you know, wiki art or, or, or something that uh, lets you really like zoom in nicely, that you know the the like the like the like the physical sensation that you would imagine with a paint to be like uh that i i think that that has some you know importance to the artwork right that you don't necessarily see if you're to look at a painting like on your phone or something um but sure. you, you should be able to tell like you know when we look at the sistine chapel and we look at everything outside of the birth of the birth of adam um, it's just, it's just pretty trite, right? Like, and, and, you know, uh, on some level, like, I wonder what Michelangelo himself thought of this. Cause you know, he did say over and over again that, you know, painting is like a lesser art form for him. It was like, you know, like sculpture was like the thing, right. uh, I'm not sure of his like literary opinions, but you know, who knows, but you know, to him, like sculpture was a thing. And, and, um, uh, you know, I just wonder if like, this is just the equivalent of like, you know, like a, 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 a paint by numbers, but people don't normally get to say that because um, this is just kind of like hammering you over the head. Like this is great. This is great. This is great. This is kind of like an apex of human achievement. Um, so, you know, this is why like it, it, in that video, when uh, uh, he decided to use Sistine Chapel, it's like, you know, you could use that example. You know, it's an example that everybody knows, but there are better examples of, of uh, uh, human achievement specifically from the perspective of, artistic achievement which itself is like beyond mere you know technical know-how um sure. and another thing in that video that sort of bothered me is so he titled it why uh modern art is so bad but the thumbnail and he probably didn't even understand that this is not analogous right you can't just make this transition the thumbnail uh text said um why is modern art so ugly you know the two are completely separate questions. Like the idea yeah. of, you know, beauty, what's gorgeous, you know, whatever, that's a completely separate question from what is a great work of art, right? Yeah. Um, 
uh, uh, Michelangelo is, is is beautiful, right? Like uh, like look, my, my Michelangelo's David is beautiful, right? This is it's a beautiful body, you know. It, it's exactly like when I think of like, oh, what is an ideal male form? You know, I would say that, right? This is beautiful, uh -huh. right? It's it's muscular, but not too muscular. It's clearly athletic. It's clearly healthy. It's well proportioned. He doesn't have the kind of you know modern you know bodybuilding pecs that are just kind of you know look uh, much more feminine than masculine. Uh, although people could be upset hearing that it's just true. So to me, mm -hmm. like David is like an ideal male form, but it's definitely not even close to being like the greatest sculpture as a work of art. Right. right. Um, it's probably not even the best among uh, Michelangelo's sculptures. Uh, so, uh, I, I think probably the, the Moses sculpture is even better than, than the David, but, um, uh, you know, uh, one of them I, I think is more beautiful in this kind of generic sense. And there, there's also other things that we could say about, uh, beauty, um, uh, that are kind of counterintuitive. So like, you know, behind me, I have the, 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 the poster to, um, uh, uh, the killing of a Chinese bookie, uh, you know, one of my top five favorite films, maybe my favorite film period. And I would say that it's a very beautiful film, despite the fact that, um, you know, the lines, like the dialogue, it's not, you know, very poetic dialogue. Um, uh, the, the, the shots are not like, uh, Antonioni, uh, style shots, right? So they're not like beautiful in the classic, like cinematic sense. Uh, but there's so much beauty in, um, uh, like, 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 like when Ben Gazzara's character, uh, um, uh, like stands, uh, in front of, uh, his crowd, like near the end of the film. And he's talking about, uh, Rachel who, who leaves the club after like they they get into like an altercation and he gets shot and, uh, uh, he visits uh, her at her house. Um, you know, he stands there and he says, you know, she was, uh, uh black and she was beautiful. Um, and I loved her and, and, and I drink to her. And you sort of see him like just standing around and you're wondering what exactly is going through his head. So he's, he's been shot and he might be dying. Who knows? Uh, he has just had this like very long over the top night. And the thing that he's most concerned about now is this moment of like, he's trying to perpetuate this thought of Rachel in his head. And he knows that he can't, he can't quite keep it there. Right. There is uh -huh. some kind of, beauty there in you know in in a um uh, uh in this kind of like transience and this kind of loss in the same way that you know in a traditional objective sense i guess a beautiful 20 year old woman is more beautiful like in, in the biological sense of like a, a 40 year old woman but a 40 year old woman has an advantage that a 20 year old doesn't have like she could have some weathering on the face that shows, you know, a uh, maturity and turmoil and reality that is itself its own kind of beauty, right? Mm -hmm. Um, sure. a as a, like, you know, a 35 year old man, you know, you would probably be like very turned off by the thought of like an 18 year old girl, right? But you might have, you know, desires for a 40 year old because there is some sort of affinity there, right? That, 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 that is necessary. Uh, beyond like just, you know, mere, mere physical presence. So that's another kind of beauty. Like, you know, imagine beauty. Like, uh, I think some of the most beautiful stuff in the world is it's, it's, it's material that has like a hint of, of ruin to it. Right. Like yeah. when you, when you look at, you know, Roman ruins, there's a beauty there that you don't 
get necessarily if you were to see, you know, an actual replica of what it looked like in the past, right? Uh -huh. there, 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 there's a there's a beauty even in the human face that's a little bit weathered. There's there's a beauty in that scene that I described, but um, that you know that is not necessarily the same thing as artistic greatness, right? Only one of those things that I just that I just described like like reaches art, which is you know the killing of a Chinese bookie, you know, looking at a beautiful 40 year old woman's face is, is not necessarily art. Um, and none of these other things are art, right? Roman ruins aren't necessarily art, right? Uh, uh, even architecture to some degree, you know, it's, it's more kind of like small a art. Um, so th this kind of confusion that people have, like they could look at a Michelangelo and they'd be like, Oh my God, like the forms are so beautiful and they're so, you know, Jesus Christ looks like a wrestler. Isn't that so, you know, uh, important and talented and innovative. And, you know, I guess there is some innovation there, but that's not, um, you know, that's not, that's not that important. And, uh, yeah. So, I mean, uh, do, do, uh, have you noticed that yourself, like this kind of confusion that people have with like beauty versus, versus art? Um, you know, I just see it kind of like all over the place. Yeah, of course. And, and I think that that's one of the main ways that, um, that the all art is subjective argument slides itself in, yeah. right? Uh, because if that's your metric, then I'm, you know, I, I tend to be uh, more in agreement with you. You know, like when I take photographs, for example, most of the stuff I'm attracted to uh, it might literally be ugly yeah. to a lot of people. To me, it's very beautiful. Um, there, there's something about you know, this thing, and, I, and I'll sit there and look at, you know, whatever, a twisted piece of metal, and part of the beauty to me is that it's now discarded, it's set aside, but in my brain I start to retrace, you know, what the, the life of that piece of metal would have been or something, right? You know, okay, think about all of the, the things it's gone through, the, the people who have interacted with it or created it or used it for a while and now set aside and like there, there's so much to that that to, to me that constitutes beauty uh to a lot of people it wouldn't you know um and so yeah when when you make that your you know your top or toward the top of your list of things that your boxes you're trying to check you know um to determine whether uh, an artwork is good or great you're going to run into some problems there um i'll use photography again as an example you know there are plenty of beautifully made photographs uh of beautiful things doesn't make them particularly you know worthwhile mm -hmm. artistically um and and so on and so forth i mean you know some of my very favorite photographers and photographs it's it's grainy it's grungy it's grimy it could be of a thing that's in decay you know i mentioned to you maybe before the photographer edmund teske mm -hmm. um who you know used this a lot in his work and purposefully manipulated and and uh you know in ways mauled his prints but ended up with something uh gorgeous out of it and mm -hmm. and wholly unique and i think great so um yeah I, i'm in agreement with you there i uh, to me bosch is also beautiful you know if we want to transition to talking about yeah, his so work I, I i do think it's beautiful um but again not in the traditional sense uh you know, it's it's not maybe as straight on beautiful as Michelangelo's modeling uh, of of his figures and whatever else. But I do still think, you know, I mean, Bosch clearly had a 
a ton of technical talent. Uh, from what I've read, and and I don't know if this to be one hundred percent true, but uh, he even so he painted in oil on wood panels, mm-hmm. and he also purposefully did not put layer upon layer upon layer of varnish over his finished product because he wanted some some texture. He wanted some kind of um, a roughness to the work, and he also, whether he was doing this consciously or not, uh, that shellacking over and over by a lot of other artists on their wood panels was meant to uh, show that perhaps this thing had been divinely created. Mm-hmm. You know, it was it was more perfect. It was more uh, whatever you want to say. You know, like it just it just came this way, yeah. uh, straight from the heavens or something. Yeah, and he he cast that uh, aside for the most part, and so. Um, you know, to me, uh, maybe I'll read a few of my comments on his stuff. So I think Garden of Earthly Delights, uh, and it sounds like you're going to talk about that one, yeah. probably his, his greatest work. Um, just immense mm-hmm. to me in terms of the ideas, in terms of the, the ingenuity, uh, the humor, the playfulness. You know, I, I get the sense of him, you know, chuckling to himself at least a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, you know, paint drawing and painting some of these forms on there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, th- I think some of his other works too, you know, The Last Judgment, The Temptation of St. Anthony, mm-hmm. Visions of the Hereafter, Christ Carrying the Cross, uh, prime examples of his mind and his style. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so to me, you know, uh, the, the works are great in and of themselves, but I think it also shows the greatness of Bosch as an artist because he presaged so many other things with mm-hmm. these works. You know, you see... Uh, something like Van Gogh's style, right, with that rough texture that he left there. You see surrealism. You see fauvism. You see you, 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 um, see, you see like Chinese, like you know, a painting and ink painting, and and you know, like I, I'm just looking at, at the left panel yeah. now. Uh, so the left panel of um, a Garden of Earthly Delights. Uh, so like at, at the very you know top of it. So, so um, at the very top of it, uh, this you know. This looks like it could be, other than like the fantastical elements of it, uh, it looks like it could be, you know, from like a, a Chinese, you know, a painting, like you know, de- you know, one of those like many classic paintings depicting, um, uh, you know, like poets like like Li Bai, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, in some kind of vista, but they never really have a, a focus on, you know, the kind of like hyper realism that we might see in the Renaissance. Um, yes. these kinds of, you know, trees that he has here, they're just like, you know, let me put them in, let me just put just enough color. Let me try to work like with, uh, uh omission as opposed to just merely lording it on, um, from a purely kind of like, uh, a per, uh, like perspective, uh, sense, um, you know, there is no real perspective. Like everything is just no. sort of like vertically layered. If you were to assume, you know, the, the rules of, of perspective, like these things in the back would be just absolutely gigantic, but we yeah. know, we know that they're not right. We know that every figure that you see is kind of like more or less the size of, of uh, any other figure, you know, of, of a comparable size. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we could talk about like Michelangelo saying, okay, I'm going to turn Jesus Christ into a wrestler. Uh, he says, uh, I'm going to put Jesus Christ into the creation myth mm-hmm. and I'm going to have Adam, uh, just sort of like sit, uh, like lie down here essentially. And I'm going to have him like very nervously kind of like yeah. wrap his feet yeah. around, you know, the robe of Jesus Christ. 
Um, and you know, I see I see some analyses of, of this painting, and they're like, you know, they, that Adam is looking lustfully at Eve. I don't really see lust. Uh, mm-hmm. I see kind of puzzlement. I see, you know, perhaps uh, uh, amazement. Uh, she she's looking away. He's looking. Uh, Jesus Christ is looking at the viewer. Um, and uh, an interesting thing about this painting is, you know. All the stuff that Bosch is known for in terms of like the the, the hellscapes that he makes, mm-hmm. uh, like all of these creatures are the same creatures in the hellscapes, right? This is supposed to be like pre-judgment. This is supposed to be even pre-fall. Right. Uh, technically, I guess we don't, you know, we don't since we don't know the function really of Jesus Christ here. We can't quite say that this is like pre or post fall. I mean, uh, I don't quite know. But um, these figures, like, for example, this kind of like fountain, right, with like water coming out, it doesn't seem to be like a pleasure fountain. No. Uh, uh, but when you look at the at, at the at the middle panel, right, where, where everything is just about like you know uh, engorging on pleasure, um, mm-hmm. those are just like these Rube Goldberg machines, like meant for pleasure. In the same way that his hellscapes have Rube Goldberg machines that are meant for like pain, right, and, and torture. Yeah. Um, and you know, you you look at this thing in the left panel, and you're like. What is this fountain even really for, right? Like it's mm-hmm. it, it seems to have like faces when you look closely enough, um, but you don't quite know what the function is. But you also know, looking at his other paintings, that these like little figures, like you have this like little mammal eating another mammal. This is the mm-hmm. same thing that's going to appear in the hellscape. And some of these creatures are clearly not real, right? Um, yeah. yeah, like like some of the stuff is just completely just uh, out of out of his head. Um, but you know, th- this is the way that he chooses to, to depict, uh, the, the, uh, creation myth. And, you know, just based on just this one panel alone, this from a purely like philosophical or like idea driven perspective, this is so much better and so much more interesting than, you know, uh, most things that, uh, Michelangelo, uh, has done in terms of, you know, uh, religion and depicting, uh, uh, religious ideas. Um, and, For sure. and, and yeah, like 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 moving into the the, the middle uh, panel. Uh, let me just pull it up. Um, so you know, it's like three times as big as, as the other panels. And uh, yeah, again, like you know, uh, first of all, like I, I I just noticed this noticed this today. There are a number of, and I don't know how these figure into um, uh, art more broadly, especially like European art, but. Uh, there are like a number of figures here that are clearly like African, right? Maybe they yeah. are slaves. Uh, like I, I see analyses that say that these are supposed to be like primitive humans. Uh, I don't uh, really think so. They don't seem like they're primitive humans to me at all. They just seem like they are. Um, uh, uh, in- the, the, the interesting thing is they are engaging in the same exact like earthly delights that everybody else is. There's like there's nothing here like with these like african figures that are just they're they're literally gray right they're almost blacked out mm-hmm. um but they're not presented in a way that's any different from anybody else like they're literally part of the same kind of like mass orgy if you want to call it that nobody mm-hmm. is treating them any differently they don't seem to think of themselves as any different um and and bosch is not treating them any differently they're just participating the same kind of stuff that everybody else is participating in and and one thing that uh, i noticed today that i wanted to talk about this with you because we talked about the uh um uh uh leonard schlein book art and physics maybe we're going to do a show on this uh, down down the road but yeah. i know i noticed uh, something really interesting here so 
um, uh, there is uh, a an African woman in, in like the pool, like in, in the center, um, yep. and on her head there's a peacock. I see that. Yeah, and I just noticed this for the first time. And okay, so um, you know, I don't think Bosch just randomly put in you know various creatures, right? He had a he had a uh, he had reasons for many of these creatures, and you could be, even before you like open up like you know any sort of like religious analysis, you could figure out what some of these creatures are, are, are meant to to do here, like functionally, and. Uh, uh, so in, in art and physics, uh, Leonard Schlein is making this argument that um, what artists do is they see further ahead than other people, and you could you could um, uh, uh, you could discuss this in different ways. I I, I presume um, uh, the the way that that Schlein does it is you know he says that uh, artists are able to perceive discoveries in physics before they're in fact made by scientists, mm -hmm. and. To me, this is just kind of like a more specific argument, uh, uh, like a subsection of the broader argument, which is artists see further than other people, period, right? Mm -hmm. And this has – one of the ways that this has played out according to Shalane and according to the examples and the arguments that he makes is in the realm of science and physics. Uh, and here, you know, you could sort of make the same kind of idea. Like Shalane, he sort of focuses on stuff like perspective and, you know, uh, time and, and how uh, these were adapted by artists before, uh, you know, the contributions were made by Einstein and others. But, I mean, so we have a peacock here. We know that uh, uh, this uh, 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 triptych is, is meant to show what happens with you know, uh, uh, getting like too decadent, too self-indulgent, you know, what is the end result of being too committed to like this garden of earthly delights, like too committed to the earth itself, as opposed to, you know, perhaps higher concerns. And here we have a peacock, right? But this, you know, this was, this was the 1500s. We know that a peacock is like, the like when you when you look at any like biological text like anything that explains evolution to you especially stuff like sexual selection they always bring out the fucking peacock right as the example of like you know uh uh, uh ornateness for ornateness sake and wastefulness and you know you know for a male to have an elaborate sort of a tail indicates that you know although it's wasteful there must be some level of evolutionary fitness that is less visible Right, perhaps this male is hyper aggressive. Perhaps uh, he uh, is uh, very caring in terms of being a partner and with his offspring. Who knows? Uh, and this signals to you know to to the uh, uh, female that you know this is a good mate. But the example there is always like this is this is ornateness for its own sake. It's wasteful. It's stupid. This is what we try to avoid. And here, like in the center of this painting that is supposed to be about this kind of wastefulness, we have a peacock, you know? You know, so I, I mm -hmm. wonder what Shlaine would have thought of this if he would have like, you know, stepped outside of like this kind of, uh, you know, it's it, it's a great book, but it's a little bit limited in the sense that a lot of the, the, the discussion just is geared towards like discoveries in physics, which, you know, that's definitely part of it. I think he makes his case, but, you know, that's not the only thing. And here, like, if we want to still s stick it to, like, you know, a discussion of science is, you know, we have a peacock here, right? And we have we have similar creatures elsewhere that are, you know, th they're either scary or ornate for their own sake. Like, there's something just unnecessary about it, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, here we have a kind of, like, you know, uh, 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 invisible and unconscious thinking ahead, Um I'm not sure if you want to say anything more about yeah. the two panels uh, before we get to the the hell the hell panel. 
um, which is also interesting. Yeah. Um, no, that's a really interesting insight. I hadn't noticed that detail uh, when I looked at it prior, so um, I, I don't know that I have a whole lot to add to it, but um, yeah, just generally agree with you. You know, when you do notice the the African figures or or, or black figures, um, you know, it is quite interesting. It, who knows if he's attempting to make any kind of you know socio political commentary with that, or if it's just purely uh, symbolic and and part of his artistic vision. But it is certainly unique and interesting mm-hmm. that they're included. Um, and yeah, you, you, you have even maybe my final thought and then we'll move on to the hell panel is like, you can feel the direction this is going in a way. Right. And, and, but, but it doesn't quite go there. And so he, he leaves you, you know, with this as an artwork unto itself, but it, uh, it does set up the next panel. You know, we see someone being, what looks to me, you know, borderline consumed by a clamshell or like, you know. It's closed in upon them. Um, you've got. A, Are we talking about the, the hell panel, or still on the? Uh, the I'm still one? on the center. Yeah, panel. exactly. Yeah, yeah and, 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 you, and you see like pearl, like you see yeah. pearls coming out of it. So like he's getting something of like you know like oh my god I'm getting you know money out of this I could sell this yeah. shit but but you know it's it's this uh, 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 you know like the, <laughs> the, the, there's like an advantage here that later on like we lose all advantages in the hell panel. Yes, exactly. So right now it's still. Uh, working okay even things like the if we're if we're talking about the the fountain in the first panel yeah and in this panel you know these several figures here you know i guess it adds up to be five other like little huts or houses or domes uh but they're you know they're simultaneously like intriguing and, and sort of beautiful mm-hmm. but but a bit hellish you know like they're spiky and they're weird and uh and just yeah um Again, a, a, a bit of a preview into what's going to come next when this all collapses. But, uh, but again, just I mean, he's in his own his own territory here yeah. it, it, for the, for the painters of this time. So it's yeah, it's just it's just great. It's amazing. And, and you know, like like there, this is this is even more detailed than the Sistine Chapel, right? Yeah. But, that detail is just like detail for detail sake. Oh, what are we supposed to do? Okay, well, you know, uh, uh, I I have some religious people to satisfy, so you mm-hmm. know, let's let's just do classic stories from the Bible, get this over with. Here, um, you have the, you have even more detail, but uh, all these details they are they are taking you somewhere. Like, there's a reason for them. Like, I'm looking at the very left. There's this kind of weird. Um, it looks like a flower that's kind of like blowing a bubble of some sort. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, yeah. but this bubble, like it has uh, veins in it. it's almost as if, you know, you see like the veins in the leaf, uh, mm-hmm. but this would also be like the veins you would have like, you know, on a lung or something and inside this kind of like, you know, ensconced in this kind of, you know, almost like perfect kind of, you know, environment. Um, you have, you know, the two figures, uh, I don't think it's, uh, it's, I don't think it's like Adam and Eve. It's just two random figures. Um, and they're clearly, you know, like, uh, 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 like, uh, lusting after one another in some way. Right mm-hmm. below, though, you have this kind of disturbing thing where you have like some kind of mammal with a tail. Looks like a, uh, it's not a, it's not a rat. Maybe it's some kind of piker or something. Um, yeah. and you have like a, a, a man's face coming out of it and, yeah. <laughs> and it's like, is about, is like, and is observing it, right? Cause this, 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 animal like it's kind of cute it doesn't seem to be a threat in any way um i assume this is like a very clean kind of a uh, location uh give, given the nature nature of the painting 
Um, but this, 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 this is exactly what you would see later on in the hellscape, right? Uh, yeah. But it's going to be twisted into like now it's an actual threat. Now you know here you're 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 just indulging it so much and you're laughing about it. But um, you know uh, I think we can move to to the to the uh, hell. Yeah, let's um, go there. Yeah. So uh, yeah, you want to you want to just start that off? Sure. So yeah, just building on what we were saying here in the past few minutes. Um, this this is you know everything kind of reaching this crescendo maybe in a way a, a logical endpoint. I mean, Bosch was still will presume you know a, a religious person mm -hmm. in some way, and and so you know he is uh, moving things toward the the religious or Christian endpoint after all the indulgence. But yeah, I mean th this is the one, and this is probably the most famous panel of the three. I would say. Um, and, and it, again, it is just incredible in its own fresh ways because now, of course, we've just on a technical level, we've swapped the the colorful cotton candy color palette for you know these dark tones, ochres and grays and black. Um, but but there's so many interesting little surprises in here too. So you know, for example, right toward the center, you know, maybe top-ish center. There's this human face poking out of that disc right beneath the like heart or lung shaped pink object, mm -hmm. and yeah. supposedly that's potentially a, a self portrait yeah. uh, of Bosch. So he, you know, he places himself in the midst of all of this. Uh, again, you know, there's multiple potential interpretations that are layers of meaning. We have really strange imagery, like what looks like a knife blade coming out of what two ears that are kind of skewered together mm -hmm. um we have animal skulls you know like an arrow through the eye but there's still people like attempting pleasure here yeah. um you know and and like striving for it to the bitter end uh while obviously everything crumbles around them and, and as you said some of these you know animal figures uh feature once again um it's yeah but, but i mean this to me is so like the the jump from here to Dali mm -hmm. is very clear. You know, I mean, that's the, the next artist I immediately go to every time I look at this. Yeah. And uh, but but it's just amazing that Bosch was doing this so much earlier. You know. Yeah. Um, I mean, like think about it. This was like before you know, like many of the classics uh, of the Renaissance, and yep. you know, the Renaissance gets so much attention, but. Um, you know, like when you think of like a hellscape and, and what, you know, um, what that kind of fear might look like inside a person, you know, it's going to look something like this. It's going to be disturbing. It's not just going to be like, you know, devils with like pitchforks or, um, no. you know, like people burning in fire. Um, some this of this is, is what a nightmare looks like. Yeah. yeah, yeah things from looks like yeah. life, yeah. but, but just totally chopped and screwed Yeah, in a weird way. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, uh, yeah. And like, just like we had those, those, uh, um, uh, Rube Goldberg machines designed for pleasure in the previous panel here, you know, they're just designed for pain. Like you look all the way at the bottom and you have that kind of bird, that big blue bird sitting, I guess, on this kind of weird throne. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, like what, what, what's going on there, right? Like we have essentially like, okay, so you have this like green figure. And his hands are tree branches, and he's grabbing like the tits of this of this like lady, 
and she looks like she's pregnant actually so he's grabbing yeah. her stomach he's grabbing her breast and it's like a tree branch grabbing it right so th mm -hmm. that's that's uh that's that's pretty uh sinister um you have this like weird uh, uh mammal that's like right next to her like he himself seems to be like behind a kind of like glass or just some kind of like window where you know he's able to look out on all these tortures as he creates them and this in a weird way like when you think of like siege engines and you think of like um you know modern tanks and all of that like this is kind of what it is right like a person that's like completely ensconced and protected uh looking out while like just delivering all this like mindless carnage all around yeah and then going up to the bird like the bird is eating uh a you know human being yeah you have like birds coming out of the human's ass and instead of like seeing like like you like a lot like like there's like no there's virtually no blood here i see like some some bloody um uh uh uh, uh like parts like like a bloody rag or whatever but there's no blood here there's simply the consumption and at the other end you have out of this like weird blue kind of sack, you have all these human beings like that he's eating. They're not like being like chomped to death. They're simply passing through this empty body out of the sack into this pit of like vomit, right? Yeah. yeah. And into this pit of like you have like these coins being shitted out by like this other guy. Um, <laughs> and, and you know, and, and you have like you have some you, you have like some woman who's like, uh, she seems to also be part of this torture. And she's just saying, you know, like she's holding back the guy's head as he's vomiting into the pit. And uh, she's like essentially saying like, okay, like, you know, this is just our function. Like you're vomiting and I hold your head. And then mm -hmm. you have another woman that's like so used to this torture. She's just bored by it. Um, so, and all those like cute animals are kind of like weird uh, from the other panels. Now, now they're being put uh, for like a, a a a use of torture right um yeah like th this is just so this is just so much imaginative than imaginative than like baseline renaissance right like yeah um you know i i think there's no you know there, there's no comparison there's no comparison in that regard the last thing i'll say is at the very top like probably my favorite is uh, the use of the light um you know there's like some kind of war going on, right? Yeah. There is, you know, yes. these might be uh, the uh, kind of like new people coming into hell. I mean, who knows? But there is some kind of war going on in the background. The lighting is unlike anything that, you know, I've seen, I think, you know, like compared to other artworks of its time or before, right? I have not seen light used in just this way. And the thing that is most uh, reminiscent to me uh, of this, uh, I mean, he's not a contemporary, but um, if you look at the, the painting by El Greco, uh, view, uh -huh. of, view of Toledo, um, this is the same use of light, right? The same reasons why I love El Greco and uh, the same reasons why uh, he would be like a great artist. Um, uh, 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 this is being used by Bosch. Uh, and let me, just, I forget, what is... Uh, what is the time period of El Greco? Um, yeah, so so like uh, around around the same time, right? So so two people, yeah. right, are are coming to the same conclusion. They're like, you know, there is something uh, to be used with light in a way that people are, have not used it before. Maybe they're uncomfortable using it. Maybe they haven't thought about it. But I'm going to use it. Ba Basha is using it. Um, so you know. 
yeah, so uh, yeah, I mean, this is pretty much as much as I have to say about about that. Yeah, exactly. And my final thought too is again, just you know, the imaginative power uh, that we've talked about and the the advanced you know announcement of some of these trends and ideas uh, in in art and even like yeah this this whole top of that panel where you're looking at the light and the color palette used it, it even in a way reminds me of cubist works um, like some of the, the darker toned Picasso cubist works or George Brock mm-hmm. um, you know so there's even some of that hints of that in here I mean I don't want to get too carried away with attributing every single artistic idea and movement thereafter to Bosch, but um, it's just it really impressive, yeah, is the bottom line. I, I, I wonder to what degree, and this is like one of the injustices, like when I think of like poets like James Emanuel, um, it's pretty clear that by the time that he becomes like world famous, uh, at that point we would have already had, you know, the work of Dan Schneider, we would have had like, you know, other, you know, great poets that would be coming up maybe so james emmanuel has not had the opportunity to like really influence the arts which is the fucking shame like mm-hmm. he, he did a lot he you know he wasn't like such a crazy like innovative writer in terms of like technique or or form or anything like that but you know at his best like he had you know great poems and these are great worthwhile poems he had ways of discussing race that were very different from the ways that uh, race got discussed in the arts and in poetry um and and you know he, he hasn't had a chance to influence people and you know i wonder to what degree you know bosch had a chance to uh, influence artists because you know you know we know him now he's famous now um but you know uh, others are, are more famous i would argue that you know perhaps like dolly is probably like a greater artist so to the extent that he was influenced by bosch this was clearly a good thing and you know th- this is like an example of, of, of all of that being in action right like how, how how are we building this infrastructure how are we building for the next world where well you know bosch was around and and he did what he did, and a few centuries centuries later, ba- uh, Bosch was able to, you know, uh, in a sense, like give birth to to someone like Dali, right? This is this is how the world moves. This is how things change. You know, it happens. It happens in the sciences. It happens in you know every other field. There's no reason to assume that the arts are somehow innately disconnected from you know the fabric of reality. Uh, you know, compared to like anything else in the world, right? It moves by the same logic. It moves by the same needs. Yep. Um, so, uh, so, so, so yeah, like, yeah. And I wonder like, you know, like Bosch was to some degree, like ignored for a long time and that's an, an injustice. Like it would have been a richer world for everybody if, uh, Bosch's influence was allowed to, to, to be out there and to, uh, you know, maybe we could have had a Dali earlier on. And if we would have had a Dali earlier on, maybe we would have uh, had the, the next iteration, which has not come to pass yet. Um,
Let's just go to uh, Stevens. So, um, I mean, like Wallace Stevens, uh, very uh, formative um, uh, for me, right? He was like one of the. I remember like Wallace Stevens uh, when I finally understood his uh, his poetry. Like a lot of stuff started making sense. Like with poetry in general, like um, when it comes to like the best poetry, especially like modern stuff that is could, could be kind of hard. Um, it's just kind of like learning a new new language, right? Like once you understand what the references are once you understand what the techniques are once you understand you know why uh certain things might be phrased a certain way um you know everything just kind of opens up so i'm glad that we're able to uh discuss this poem um yeah do, do you want to you want to read it or should i why don't you read this one since i read archaic torso of apollo uh before you do though i mean you probably would have mentioned it or, or linked to it but uh you know you have a a nice essay on your site on this oh, poem. Oh yeah, yeah, so. yeah. I, I actually rewrote Worth. it this morning just to see like if my mind change. And, and in fact, like compared to the essay, like my, uh, um, I, I kind of view it a, a little bit more darkly, I guess, than I than I used to. Um, mm -hmm. So okay, so a rabbit as king of the ghosts. The difficulty to think at the end of the day. When the shapeless shadow covers the sun and nothing is left except light on your fur. There was the cat slopping its milk all day. Fat cat, red tongue, green mind, white milk, in August, the most peaceful month. To be in the grass in the peacefulest time, without that monument of cat, the cat forgotten on the moon. And to feel the delight is a rabbit light, in which everything is meant for you and nothing need be explained. Then there is nothing to think of. It comes of itself. And east rushes west and west rushes down, no matter. The grass is full and full of yourself. The trees around are for you. The whole of the wideness of night is for you. A self that touches all edges. You become a self that fills the four corners of night. The red cat hides away in the fur light. And there you are, humped high, humped up. You are humped higher and higher, black as stone. You sit with your head like a carving in space, and the little green cat is a bug in the grass. Um, so yeah, I mean, like when I when I when I first read this poem, I, I guess like my basic interpretation is 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 still the same, right? We have um, like if you imagine. Uh, a rabbit, right? And a rabbit could be a stand-in for absolutely anyone or anything, and the mm -hmm. cat could be a stand-in for anyone or anything that is a threat to that rabbit, right? Um, and yes. uh, you know, people do all sorts of things, or they or or they engage in behaviors that can kind of you know put aside like these threats, right? You want to always push them to the side. You don't want to deal with them, right? You, you engage in, in what Maslow calls um, uh, deficiency needs. Uh, uh, you, you become like a deficient person. And uh, I mean, it's, 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 it's interesting to sort of do this in kind of like the most crass way possible, right? Like if you, if you present this in terms of like people, like I could imagine, you know, defense mechanisms are automatically going up like okay you know maybe this applies to other people but it doesn't apply to me but if you just see this in a, the basic animal sense right of, of creatures responding to other creatures or other threats um you're gonna see in like a very kind of simple-minded way 
uh, you know, people behaving like this rabbit, right? Like, Im imagine ha ha how many people like actually want this for themselves. Um, mm -hmm. you, you have on the one hand, like, you know, so you're here in the grass in the peacefulest time. Um, so first, like you're privileging, you know, peace over any other kind of thing in your life, including conflict, including even positive conflict, right? There are positive conflicts, but people, you know, are, are, are risk averse or conflict averse. And th this can play out in very negative ways um, uh, without that monument of cat. You know, I've always thought that was like a, a great phrase, right? Um, mm -hmm. when you think of monument, right? Like it, th that could be anything, right? Like a, a monument as like an amorphous kind of force that, that, that just keeps you, you know, that just keeps you on your toes or that j just gives you anxiety. Um, uh, you know, it could be anything in this case, uh, it's, it's the monument of cat. And again, like by, by switching out the kind of like, you know, more uh, simple, basic stuff instead of having like the the highfalutin conceptual material. Like you, you, you sort of see, you know, like how a rabbit's behavior is is kind of like a human behavior here. Um, and, and to feel the delight is a rabbit light. And this this to me is like the apex of like, you know, childish thoughts. Like, you know, mm -hmm. you are so self-absorbed and you're so fearful of the world. And you're so uh, deficient in, in Maslow's sense that, you know, even the light is like, you know, it's like your own personal little fucking rabbit light. You know? For me, yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. Um, in, in which everything is meant for you and nothing need be explained, you know. There are so many people that, that they want that life for themselves, right? Everything is for them. Nothing needs an explanation, right? Like th this, this is an actual aspiration that people have. It reminds me a little bit of, um, I'm not sure if you've ever seen Office Space, but uh, I, mm -hmm. I always found it funny how uh, when uh, the protagonist gets asked, I forget his name, um, so if you had a million dollars, what would you do? And he said, nothing. I will do absolutely nothing. You what? So like you think like you know people will engage and oh I have a million dollars now so I'm gonna do all these wonderful things I'm gonna really change my life. No, he just wants to do nothing, right? That's the, that, that's all that he wants for himself. Um, yeah. And and you know the same thing here, right? Like nothing need be explained. I have the world, you know, as it is, and and it, it requires no conflict. Um, there's nothing to think of. It comes of itself. Uh, uh, the grass is full and full of yourself. The trees around you are for you. Uh, and I, I've always liked this line. Uh, you become a self that fills the four corners of night. Like even the threat that this rabbit or like a human being is made to feel, that threat is so like simplified and caricatured that like, you know, the night suddenly has like four corners, right? Like, and that that's mm -hmm. such a simplification of like what the nighttime is, right? The nighttime, yeah. it, it, to the extent that it has any kind of danger, it's much more than four corners. But, you know, I think so many human anxieties can more or less be kind of seen in that sense, right? Like you you simplify human fear and anxiety to, to just that, right? Like you just have those four corners, right? Uh, there, there, there's nothing more. It's like this, it's like this, like, like, like simple uh, formula. It's a simple equation. As long as you have those four pieces, this is the thing that you have to fear. Um, and, and, uh, 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 the, the red cat hides away in the fur light. 
and there you are humped high humped up and like that phrasing right like it's kind of funny right um mm -hmm. hump high hump up that alliteration like it sounds kind of you know we have like modern associations with the word uh, uh hump they're kind of like sexual which kind of play more to towards into this but even if you like omit all that and you just think of like how you know while stevens would have thought of it um this like word hump it just sounds so dope you're right you repeat it twice and right. you, you sort of see this like rabbit or person and it's like full childishness uh you're humped higher and higher black as stone and you sit with your head like a carving in space okay so now you have your full fucking apotheosis right you've never made the transition from like a human being that has like actual needs and and fears and things to actually work through and not to like you know omit from your experience and not to like avoid and run away from now you get to be this like completely disembodied carving in space right mm -hmm. this, this is now your, your fucking human apotheosis this is this is this is the guy in office space right this is his uh i get a million dollars and i do nothing right i get to be this disembodied disemboweled you know uh, uh non-entity right um and the little green cat is a bug in the grass right so if you want to uh, talk about like you know poor you know risk management of human beings right this is this is exactly what happens right you you um uh, uh you, you get so scared of life right you're, you're so avoidant that even things that are actual threats that you need to be taken care of now they're just so like you don't even, you don't even have to deal with actual threats anymore right forget about your little anxieties now actual existential problems are not problems for you and again you know uh uh from a Ma uh, maslow sense um like like i say i say this before but like uh the biggest threat in life right uh, to you like existentially is if you're a white person in america and you wake up in the morning and if you decide to have a donut that morning and every morning thereafter that is your fucking existential threat it's not you getting murdered right it's not you getting mugged it's not anything other than did i do this completely stupid thing which is like you know eat the wrong food at the wrong time too many times um and, and you know people are, are terrible that kind of risk assessment they're they're much more concerned about things that are probably not going to get them right um and 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 you know like here it's it, this is being expressed in poetry i mean this is just such a wonderful poem especially for people that don't you know like wallace stevens is not an easy poet especially if you're starting with wallace stevens but uh, i think this is this is a poem that's like immediately uh comprehensible to to the majority of people like if assuming you read it a few times yeah yeah i would agree with that um any other comments or i'll make a few comments on it but i'm uh, honestly really exhausted i really have nothing else to say okay yeah same um so i mean yeah my thoughts uh as it pertains to moslau are almost verbatim a few that you shared at the beginning uh the rabbit as a stand-in for the reader uh, or any person really people at large uh dealing with multiple uncertainties or threats in life also the threat of our own selves and our tendency toward regression mm -hmm. even our even our tendency to as you just mentioned even if they're not there drum up or invent our own cat or monument of cat uh in our lives you know and uh and pretend that there is something threatening uh and, and make more of it than it really might be we all do this uh but we can over we can overcome that and 
Neil Maslow would say again, it's through B cognition, it's through self-actualization, it's through peak experiences and repeating those behaviors over time. And I, I, as I was reading the poem again in that context and kind of in this Maslow mindset, um, maybe the main uh, passage that stood out to me was the grass is full and full of yourself. The whole of the wideness of night is for you, a self that touches all edges. You become a self that fills the four corners of night, uh, as, as you mentioned that particular line. So, um, you know, maybe this is in a way Stevens's take on, you know, self-actualization, uh, that, that this is possible you can do this, uh, the grass, maybe in this case, meaning life, you know, life is full and full of yourself. Again, kind of that mm-hmm. um, interrelationship of, of the, the macro and the micro when you are uh, actually working towards something or being your best, the trees around are for you, the whole of the wideness of the night is for you. So again, while that's, um, you know, certainly one interpretation is selfishness, everything is mine and, mm-hmm. um, and I want to have it. It, it, could, it could definitely, it could definitely be both. Um, you know, this is mm-hmm. probably why, like, uh, maybe, like, I again, some motivated reasoning here. Like, maybe I, uh, a little bit of darkness in my life makes me think of this more darkly. But you know, like, there is definitely like a, a sense of uh, uh, transcending here. Like, you can yes. do it. But the, the fact that you could read it identically in the opposite sense, right? Um, you know, th- mm-hmm. this is one of the uh, things about like artistic greatness, right? You want to uh, be able to have this multiplicity of meaning, and you know when when uh, Maslow talks about you know the, the sense of like tension and resolution, um, th- you know this is an example of that in the arts, right? Like you you have all the time, you know, uh, in the arts things that are contradictory, right? Like meanings are contradictory, or or interpretations that it could be this or it could be the exact opposite, and you don't necessarily uh, 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 get to know what that is, right? Um, so, right. you know, this is, you know, th- th- this is, this, you know, this would be one of the reasons why this is a, a great poem. The fact that it does have this kind of a, a multiplicity, right? Which was, you know, kind of like in tune with like my earlier reading back from, uh, from that essay from a few years ago. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah. And my, my final comment is, uh, again, with that multiplicity or ambiguity, even the title, yeah, a rabbit as king of the ghosts. You know, he could have made so many different decisions on that. A rabbit as king, yeah. a rabbit as a ghost, uh, the king of the ghosts. See, I mean, any version thereof, but then a rabbit as king of the ghosts. You know, what does that exactly mean? Um, and, we've and got, it, and it plays into you know a lot of the meanings that we just discussed, right? Like it could play into like either you know either reading and uh, perhaps yeah. other readings as well. Right? Yep. So that that. Uh, frequently overlooked usage of a, of a good title which Stevens was a master of so um, well we do have uh, I, I do have that one poem that I just sort of like snuck in without telling you uh, <laughs> yeah. I was gonna just you know we, we should we should like surprise each other we should always like you know like I, I, I didn't know that you'd be able to discuss the um, the uh, uh, the Bosch triptych but um, you know you were so yep. uh, we should we should always strive to surprise each other, and uh, so this this poem it's fr- it's from Leaves of Grass, um, a deathbed uh, edition. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's titled "As I Pondered in Silence." Not uh, I guess it's not really the title. I guess it's just the the first line of the poem. Um, and you know this th- this poem just like in the way of introducing it. Uh, you know what we've been talking about in terms of like you know self actualization and. 
what I mentioned about um, uh, being comfortable with uh, the is all distinction, not feeling the need that you have to like resolve it, but just being comfortable with actually fighting for that ought. You know, saying that I, I have no way to compel you to accept my art, but I'm going to keep arguing for it. And if you don't want to join in my program, in my war, right, that's fine. But I think I'm going to accumulate a larger army, right, which is essentially what values are, right? If you don't have enough soldiers for your values, um, whether these soldiers be people espousing your arguments, or uh, you making these arguments themselves, um, uh, these values are, are never going to take root in the world, right? You have to always uh, be able to do that. Um, and, you know, th this just strikes me as like uh, a um, kind of like, you know, artistically, this is this is the project that we're in when we say things like, uh, you know, there is art that is good, there is art that is bad, and, and we have to uh, be able to defend these values. So um, as I pondered in silence, Oh, did I say this is a Walt Whitman poem, or did I just say Leaves of Grass? You just said it's from Leaves of Grass. Oh yeah. yeah. So we're, we're see we're 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 so fucking condescending here, right? But like we don't even like we don't even like explain anything. You know, we just yeah. we just assume, right? Like if I say if I say Leaves of Grass, you better fucking know what I'm talking about, right? If I say Deathbed Edition, you must know what I mean, right? <laughs> Deathbed Edition is like the final edition of because it was it was Leaves of Grass was you know a, a, a poem that was a song of myself and a few other famous ones. Um, and then it grew and grew and grew and grew and grew uh, as a kind of like, you know, I guess it's a continuous poem. In some ways, it's, it's somewhat disconnected as well. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, as I pondered in silence, returning upon my poems, considering lingering long, a phantom arose before me with distrustful aspect, terrible in beauty, age and power, the genius of poets of old lands as to me directing like flame its eyes with finger pointing to many immortal songs and menacing voice. What singest thou, it said? Knowst thou not there is but one theme for ever enduring bards? And that is the theme of war, the fortune of battles, the making of perfect soldiers. Be it so, then I answered, I too, haughty shade, also sing war, and a longer and greater one than any. Waged in my book with varying fortune, with flight, advance, and retreat, victory deferred and wavering. Yet methinks certain, or as good as certain at the last, the field, the world, for life and death, for the body and for the eternal soul. Lo, I too am come, chanting the chant of battles. I above all promote brave soldiers. Um, and, you know, like, uh, I just hope that people reading my essays or, uh, uh, you know, wa uh, watching our, our dialogue here, um, you know, I'm not going to deny that I am accumulating a personal set of like militia, right? I am recruiting people for this war, right? Like this war is, I have a certain sense, like whether it's like politically, right? I have my, my essays. I, you know, uh, engage in my, my, my fucking like leftist propaganda, but I'm going to engage in the same thing with the arts, right? Like the same, uh, feelings that I have about politics and, and the right and wrong and how society needs to be organized, you know, uh, uh, un, you know, from the government uh, top down, um, those same ideas, like they're going to apply to the arts. 
I have also here a set of values. They're not political values, but they're still a set of values. And um, I have to fight for them. I have to get people on my side. Uh, uh, I have to just continue to recruit soldiers. And I'm, I myself, right, I'm a soldier in this war. Walt Whitman said it over and over and over and over again, right? He said, you know, uh, uh, all these great libraries, uh, uh, I, you know, I am bringing something for your well-stocked shelves that you need the most, but you don't have. Um, and, you know, when we think of this being said 150 years ago, like, it's really uh, amazing that he knew exactly what he was doing. He knew, he knew who he would be historically, right? Um, and, and, and that, that is, you know, kind of like the, the, the greatest thing of all, you have to know where you are in the world, in the cosmos. This is why you need to self-actualize. This is why it's important to, uh, uh constantly, uh, work on yourself. And if you are lucky enough or unlucky enough to be something like a great artist, you just have to go with that. Right. Um, and, and, you know, whether it's like you're, you're engaging in politics or, or, or whatever, like there's always a set of values that you have to fight for, right? You have to fight for these values. You can't just assume that history is going to take care of it. Um, uh, you, you have to propagate yourself and you have to do it in a way that's, that's compelling, that's charismatic. Uh, and, and that, that does something that the world can actually believe in. Um, so that's why I wanted to end uh, with, with that poem. Great. Yeah, I, well said. I don't have a whole lot to add to your comments there. Um, and I did have one final poem as well that oh, I no think... surprise. I didn't think you'd have something like that for me. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so this is again from Wallace Stevens. And it's a more direct treatment of some of these ideas, and it's a pretty, pretty straightforward, simple poem. Uh, it's you know not his greatest poem, but I, it, it's one that um, just is personally meaningful to me, and and does talk about these things. Um, maybe my final thought before I read the poem, poem too is that uh, you know for anyone watching and hopefully gaining something or maybe a few things from this conversation, um, you know, to to have fun. Uh, if you can, you know, with these capacities, whatever you have, you know, that seems to be one of Maslow's um, points that he tries to drive home multiple times is playfulness is important, enjoyment is important, and that's a lot of what this is about, you know, the idea of enjoying your life, having a richer life and experience, and then, um, you know, if you're capable of doing so, sh you know, showing some of that to the world and, and pushing it back out there in the form of creative work. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that this uh, piece from, from Stevens talks about that. Uh, before I read it, just real quick, I, I think it's pretty commonly asserted that uh, Ariel, the character in the first line of this poem, is, is Stevens himself. You know, this is autobiographical. So, the planet on the table. Ariel was glad he had written his poems. They were of a remembered time, or of something seen that he liked. Other makings of the sun were waste and welter, and the ripe shrub writhed. His self and the sun were one, and his poems, although makings of his self, were no less makings of the sun. It was not important that they survive. What mattered was that they should bear some lineament or character, some affluence, if only half perceived, in the poverty of their words, of the planet of which they were part. 
So just some final thoughts there on uh, this interaction of the self, yourself, with with the world and the cosmos and your experience in it, and hopefully uh, doing something that that has some worth <laughs> over time. Yeah, I think this is a this is a a, a perfect way to end. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean we'll uh, keep doing these car uh, conversations. This is artifact number one, Abraham Maslow and. Artistic Creativity with Alex Sheramit and Jill Parrish. Um, apologize for some of the technical uh, hiccups, but um, now that I see that my video is simply getting too long, we could avoid that in, in the future. Um, any uh, parting words before we close this out? Just a thank you. Thanks for inviting me to do this. It's uh, been, a, I think, a really good uh, good way to kick this off. I hope that we'll continue to have more really good conversations and uh, again, hope that anyone watching is getting something out of it. So thanks for, uh, thanks for the conversation, Alex, and thanks for watching to anyone out there. Have a good night. Oh my god. Oh my god.